Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron List. Those are, uh, can, those are a pair of irons I can only that picture I found. The, the man with the iron fists. Oh, yeah, I remember that oh, movie. That, that movie, yeah. Yeah. With, um, with, the, the, with the, the RZA. Yeah. <laughs> Good stuff. Uh, yeah, this is The Iron List. Once a month here on the critically acclaimed network, we do a big, giant top ten list with both I, William Bibiani, film critic, everybody calls me Bibbs, and Whitney Seibold, film critic, everybody calls him Rockmeister McGool. Uh, we each pick a top ten list of something that is selected by our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. In uh, months past, we have done uh, the best Christmas movies, uh, the best film noirs, and uh, this one's a doozy because this one we are doing the best movies that begin with the letter A. As you can see, we were hurting for topics this month. <laughs> We decided um, just sort of, well, 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 I don't know, just films that start with H. No, A. We'll start with yeah. A. Uh, I'm trying to think what some of the other options were. There were like mm. the films of Martin Scorsese, or I think Car Chase movies might have been on there. Oh, yeah. But, yeah. but instead, what one was films that begin with the letter A, and there are no shortage of movies that begin <laughs> with the letter A. I feel uh -oh. like we're doing the Sesame Street version of this podcast, and I'm loving it already. A uh, is for uh, Latalant, even though there's technically an L there. Uh, Avatar. Yeah. A Quiet Place. Mm-hmm. But now that uh, counts. That's Alive. <laughs> <laughs> and John Carpenter's Halloween. <laughs> um, and, and other films as well. For, for those of you who've never had to do filing... <laughs> uh, I want to make something clear here. Movies that begin with the letter A. An article... Like a or an doesn't count in filing. Hmm. So, for example, if you were to do something like, um, uh, this is like, no, that's a terrible example. I'm trying to think of a good example here. Every movie I can think of that begins with the word an hmm. then has another, like, hmm. a word, like an American in Paris <laughs> or oh, yeah, an yeah. American world in London. I'm trying to think of, like, hmm. a movie that begins with the word a. Hmm. Okay, okay. The novel, a separate piece. Okay. That goes under S. I just said A Quiet Place. Well, there you go. A Quiet Place. <laughs> That's under Q. Q. Although, uh, it gets a little bit hazy, even with film archivists, as to where you put uh, non-English articles. Yeah. So, for example, in France, uh, a lot of articles would be Le or Les le, or la, la or just Le or L apostrophe. And, uh, yeah, if the word after that begins with A, I think... Most people probably would put that under A, like the French movie I referenced, mm. L'Atalante. L'Atalante. It's L apostrophe, Atalante. Uh, and, yeah, for, I think because the L is an article, you put that under A, but, yeah, there's yeah. not a complete consensus on that. I, I work in a um, movie theater projection booth, and we ha have to file a lot of previews, little preview reels, mm. you know, about just fitting your fist. They're about the width of, like, two, like a coffee mug. And, yeah. uh... There, if you go, came upon like the Wolfgang Peterson Das Boot, yeah, the rule there is you file it under D for Das, even though Das means the. Yeah, it translates to the boat. Yeah, it gets kind of weird. Yeah, and like La Ventura, the the Michelangelo Antonioni movie, uh, would go under L, even though it's L apostrophe. But we don't. Uh, and it, I think that's the same with like video stores. A lot of them, yeah. Mm. I I wouldn't do it that way, but I appreciate that. Yeah, there's some wiggle room here. Mm. Um, 
But uh, yeah, the reason we don't use articles, which I love that we're having a podcast talking about this, uh, is because all of the thes would really pile up, wouldn't they? Yeah. Like, oh, I'm looking for the best years of our life. It's under T for the best years. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, which is right next to the best of enemies and oh, all of these other God. the best. It's, 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 it gets weird. It would be a nightmare. I remember... Uh, a lot of filing software when they when the internet first started to launch, like mm-hmm. in the mid-90s. They didn't have that distinction. Well, yeah, it wasn't so sophisticated that it could separate that out, or the people who were making these programs weren't really thinking about that. Mm-hmm. So people were typing in the articles, and a lot of things were filing under T for the. Yeah. And as such, when you look up people's names, now you have to look them up by first names. Yeah, a lot of the time, yeah. This is one of my largest pet peeves. I'm going to have a heart attack about this, and it's not worth having a heart attack over, but I'm still going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> No, there's a reason so if you, we if have... you want to look up, like, just to cite a random example, uh, Justine Bateman, mm-hmm. now you have to look up J. For Justine. Not Bateman, comma, Justine. If you if you were to make a movie out of the mixed-up files of Basily Frankweiler, or Mrs. Basily Frankweiler, mm. uh, the files wouldn't be mixed up anymore. <laughs> yeah. Actually, like, seriously, the thing that makes them mixed up, like, oh, no one would ever file like this, people mm. just do that on the internet now. Yeah. yeah. Whole, the whole novel is ruined. Um, but, uh, anyway, we both worked at video stores and honestly, a lot of the, uh, the debates that we still get into over like what categories movies fall into mm-hmm. are based off of back when, okay, alien could only go into one section in the video store cause we only had one copy. Does it go under sci-fi mm-hmm. or horror? That's an actual conversation you need to have. What will people most assume mm-hmm. it goes under for ease of use and what space, space and, alien spacecraft is a science fiction movie, but it's also very scary. So I can see mm-hmm. the opposing argument, but yes. Mm-hmm. So back then it was actually necessary to make a determination, but now that everything's just got a billion hashtags, yeah. now that everything's like, you know, and got, just sort of sneezed out in no order whatsoever on all the yeah. streaming services. So like if you were looking for, under horror movies, Alien would be there. If you're looking under sci-fi movies, Alien, Alien would also, also be there, there yeah. and that wouldn't be a problem. So when we get all snooty about whether a movie is is or is not a horror movie, all that matters is that you can reasonably call it a horror movie, then it's fine. Mm. And when it comes to filing, last name. <laughs> La- please last name. And under titles, articles do not count. Boom. So mm. that's what the, that's the... what we're going to be following. So if you're thinking about a movie... Like A Quiet Place, is A Quiet Place going to be on your list? No, it starts with a Q. Hmm. That's why we bring it up. Yeah, agreed. Okay, so now that we've established <laughs> some ground rules. Otherwise, well, all one, movies one, from all time periods are accepted. Mm. Just have to be a feature film. What, one more completely extraneous filing question. Mm. The 400 Blows. Do you put it under F? Where do you put it in the Fs? Mm-hmm. And... Or do you have a separate section for films that begin with numbers? I put it under F's. F's. Where in the F's? Do you put it... If you were to spell it F-O-U-R, would yeah. you put it in there? Yeah, okay. F-O-U-R. Okay, good. Because that's what I did, too. Yeah. And I got in trouble at my video store job uh, for filing that way. Would they want you to do under numbers? They'd want you to take the first letter of the number and put it at the head of that letter. Shut so all, all of the, the film, like 42nd no. Street and 400 Blows and everything everything to begin with a four would be at the head of the Fs. No, that doesn't make any sense. I F- understand. 5,000 Fingers of Dr. T. Like, they'd all be bunched up there. I disagree with it, but mm. I understand putting all of the titles that begin with a numerical number. Mm. Like, in, in like one place. Like, eight and a half goes at the beginning of the alphabet because it starts with a number and not mm. an, alpha, uh, an alphabet character. Mm. I understand that. I disagree with that, but I understand that. 
everything you just said is complete nonsense. <laughs> that is complete nonsense to me, and I can't mm. handle any of it. Um, and one last uh, caveat before we get going, uh, if you're new to the Iron List, Whitney and I enjoy doing top ten lists, but we do them a little differently than most people because we don't really care too much about rankings. Mm. If they've made our top ten list, it means we highly recommend them, and that's all that really matters. So we're going to give all of our picks... Uh, just in the order that comes to us, mm. the order doesn't matter, but we are going to save our number one favorite pick or a pick for the best. I know Whitney and I both agonized over this one a little bit because there's a lot of really, really great movies that start with the letter A. Uh, <laughs> it's so, kind of an arbitrary distinction. But, but it's fun. You know, well, it's there's, there's great movies that start with every letter of the well, alphabet. Just this is a, a weird, fun way to narrow it down. Well, maybe one day we'll get to those letters, too. But uh, we'll deal with that another time. But yeah, so we're going to end with the film or films that we would pick as our number one. But uh, before then, the order does not matter. These are all just amazing movies that we highly recommend and that we think uh, deserve to be canonized as the greatest movies that begin with the letter A. Whitney. Yes. Where do you want to begin? <laughs> um, I'm going to start with a fun one. Oh, good. I'm not sure if this is one of the best movies ever that starts with the letter A, but it's one of the movies I've watched the most. Okay. There's a period in my adolescence when this was maybe the most important movie in the world to me. Okay. And it's Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness. Ah, interesting choice. Uh, Army of Darkness is ostensibly a... It's a, a sequel to a horror movie. It's a medieval adventure. But more than anything, it's a slapstick comedy. Uh, and it, it chugs along. It's like, how long is that movie? Like 78 minutes. Oh, it's, it's like less it's than really half, brief. Yeah. It's very, it's very efficient, mm -hmm. but um, it feels dense. Like there's a ton of different plot points mm -hmm. that go, that move along. It starts off with a poor bastard who's been sucked into a portal into medieval England and he's been held prisoner and he has to fight a monster. And all of a sudden everyone thinks he's the chosen one. Then he goes on this wild quest where he sleeps in a haunted windmill where mm -hmm. a bunch of little versions of him <laughs> attack him. And he goes to a haunted cemetery and it ends with a giant battle against an army of the dead awesome uh, it was a huge failure. Uh, nobody went to see this thing. I think because nobody knew how to market this. It's, uh, a, it's a tough sell. I mean, if you're not fans, a fan of the original, fa I mean, Evil Dead Two. Uh, it this, it came out in the early '90s, and um, at that point, Evil Dead Two had a little bit of clout among like the Fangoria crowd. Yeah, people, people who really knew their cult horror. Uh, vocabulary really, yeah, really well, it, and it was it was Evil Dead Two was rated X when it came out. So the first was, Evil Dead, Evil Dead Two was rated R. Was it really rated? Yeah, R? Okay, yeah. I remember them. I think they had to cut it down or something. But um, in any case, it was not a huge release, Evil Dead Two, but it was well received. And by that point, it had been on home video for a few years, and mm -hmm. horror fans had known of it. But it wasn't like um, there are certain movies that don't do great in theaters, but then do so well on home video that mm. they not only get a theatrical sequel, but the theatrical sequel gets to be even bigger. Okay. And the two well, big... Austin Powers is Aust an example of that. Austin yeah. Powers is a great example where the first movie did, like, made a little money, but mm. no one gave a shit, but it did so well on home video. Austin Powers 2 made, like, $75 million opening weekend, which was huge at the time. Uh, the other one that comes to mind is James Cameron's The Terminator. Oh, there you go. Oh, which yeah. did okay in theaters, but was giant smash on home video. So that when Terminator 2 came out, he got all the money in the world for it. Um, so And it made all the money in the world. Yeah. Army of Darkness, I think they were banking on something like that because the Evil Dead movies were a cult hit. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, it was it's, a hard sell to anyone who didn't know what they Evil were getting Dead, into. Evil Dead 2 is such a strange animal, and Army of Darkness is an even stranger animal. 
it I'm, it's like a parody of something that I think younger audiences wouldn't be familiar with. Yeah, Connecticut Yankee and King Arthur's Court. Well, that and also a certain kind of like medieval adventure film. What's funny that, is that I th- that weren't at all in vogue at the time. What's funny is that Army of Darkness wasn't a hit in theaters. Mm. I think it lost money, but I don't have the numbers. Oh no, it, it lost money. Okay, yeah. but the tone of Army of Darkness was something that Sam Raimi and Rob Tappert and their whole crew were able to mine for successful, intensely successful, syndicated TV shows like Hercules the Legendary Journeys mm. and Xena Warrior Princess. Xena Warrior Princess is a very close cousin of Army of Darkness in terms of the way that it tells their, their fantasy mm. stories, their tone, their sort of wink-to-the-camera mentality. The, the presence of Bruce Campbell. The presence of Bruce Campbell. <laughs> um, so it's interesting to see Army of Darkness not as this sort of financial failure that is nevertheless supremely entertaining, but as the like stealth pilot for this giant wave of Smash <laughs> Hugely TV Hugely successful TV programs. Yeah. Um, I love this movie. This movie is endlessly quotable, entertaining. Um, Bruce Campbell gets to be the dashing hero, but Sam Raimi will never let a dashing hero go by without getting the shit kicked out of him constantly, (laughs) so it's okay. uh, Ash, by the time we get to Army of Darkness, I think that's how we remember Ash as the character. Ash has sort of gone down in horror lore as one of the most important horror icons that Mm. the, the genre has yet produced. Uh, despite the fact that Evil Dead was this tiny mi- micro-budget nothing, Evil Dead 2 was a cult movie, and Army of Darkness was a, a flat-out failure, uh, and yet there's a TV series, and everybody loves these movies. Uh, where was I going with this? Uh, just, just, uh... I'll just, I'll just stop there and I'll say I love it. <laughs> I love it, too. I, I, I thought need, about I need, putting I need, it on here. I need but more I, caffeine, is what I need. I thought about putting it on here, but I couldn't quite justify it. I'm right. not sure if it made my, uh... One second. Did it make my honorable mentions? It did not, but it was close. Oh, okay. It was close. It was close. I love this movie to pieces. I've seen this movie 50 times. Right. Um, it's a delight. And, uh, yeah, from my first uh, pick on my top ten list, um, I was doing my top ten list, and I found that my top seven or eight movies were pretty easy. It was, <laughs> okay. It was like, I was looking over, I made this, like, I went over, like, the internet, looked at all the movies, started with the letter A, I racked my brain, I checked my collection, wanted to make sure I didn't forget anything, and there were, like... Seven or eight stone cold 100% classics that I think belong on any respectable list like this. There's also several alternates that you may be on yours and not mine, but I felt really solid about mm-hmm. this. And then I was looking at what I put in those last two spots. And I realized that I didn't have any movies on my list that were from the 21st century. All right. Um, when I do these kind of movies for posterity, not just like my favorite movies with whatever in it but mm-hmm. like let's talk about these seriously the best movies mm-hmm. I like to have a little distance from them I like to uh, see how you feel about them years down the line when, well see how they've aged maybe yeah. a little bit over time there are a lot of movies that were considered incredible classics that now their ideas are at best backward and sometimes not good at all but I was thinking about, I wanted to make sure I reserved a spot for one movie that came out this decade, and I ended up picking a sci-fi film that the first time I saw it, I liked it, Okay. but I didn't love it. And then the second time I saw it, I don't know, maybe I was in a bad mood that day, and I just wasn't, I wasn't feeling it. But then the third time I saw it, I was like, this is kind of perfect. <laughs> and that movie is, can you guess? Annihilation? No. No. Attack the Block. Oh, I love Attack the Block. Attack the Block fucking rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 
I remember when Attack the Block came out. Attack the Block was one of those films that played at like comic cons and a lot mm-hmm. of like quote geek uh, festivals. Yeah, and it came with a huge wave of buzz. And usually, when you hear about these movies, they tend tend to be disappointing, at least for me. Uh, or the buzz kind of outweighs the ambition of the project at some point. So or, people or are saying, people, oh, it's like, it'll blow your mind. It's really revolutionary. And then I see The Cabin in the Woods. I'm like, oh, that's, that's witty if you're a stoner. But yeah, I'm not blown away by something like The Cabin in the Woods. The one that did that for me was the movie You're Next, which is a very good, very efficient, very solid horror movie. But it had been like kept out of theaters for so long and played so many festivals that I'd, everyone I know had been hyperbolic about it mm. for so long that it just couldn't live up to that. It yeah, was just and, good. And again, yeah, your, your next is good. It has yeah. a good action movie climax, but uh, the same was true of Attack the Block. This thing directed by Joe Cornish uh, was touted as the next big thing. So when I went to the theaters to see it, I was very wary. Mm. It's like this thing has been uh, overblown. I know geek audiences, they tend to oversell things very frequently, and I ended up falling in love with it almost instantly. Yeah. I, 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 you can believe the hype on that one. And yeah. I was happy that the hype was real because I enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I don't know what my problem was the first time I saw it. I think mm-hmm. I was just... Um, I liked the characters, I liked the setup, I liked the monsters. I think I was waiting for it to become something bigger than it was. Okay. And then once I realized, you know, and this is a danger that can happen with a movie where your anticipation of something mm-hmm. doesn't match the movie you get. Even if the movie is still brilliant, if you're expecting it to do something else, you get disappointed, mm-hmm. which is why every once in a while it takes a couple of views to watch a movie. And now I'm hyper conscious of this. And I'm trying to make sure I see every movie for the first time on its own terms and trying to like nullify any expectations. Yeah, I yeah. try not to watch trailers anymore. Uh, which is a luxury well, I have because mm-hmm. I don't have to, you know, see trailers all the time. But um, when I finally just sat down with Attack the Block, knowing exactly what Attack the Block was, and I was in a good mood that day, what I found is a movie that takes a lot of things that we are sort of intimately familiar with. It has elements of uh, alien invasion, it has elements of stoner comedy, it has elements of even a gang movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Joe Cornish is extremely savvy about the way that he combines those elements so that when he introduces them, you feel like you know what's going on and why. And then mm-hmm. once they start intertwining, once they start playing off of each other, all these different subgenres and all these different characters who normally wouldn't be in the same movie together, um, you realize that your expectations of people is a lot of what the movie is about. John Boyega Mm. stars in this movie as a leader of a gang of um, sort of teenage street toughs. Mm. In in a really run down uh, building project. Yeah. And at the beginning of the movie, they are like, they're, they're mugging people. And like when an Mm. alien like lands in the park nearby, their first thought is to kill it. They're bastards. Mm. They're not nice kids. But what the movie, I think, understands is that we are being presented with these characters as though they are bad people. But you actually spend any length of time with them and the movie mm-hmm. reveals that, no, that's an entirely superficial perspective. Mm-hmm. And I love the way that this movie examines um, class issues and racial, racial issues, issues and, and yeah. even some gender issues as well um, through the use of sort of applied science fiction. Not the, the science fiction element itself is just aliens attack, but mm. the idea that once aliens attack, a lot of these things that seem so important to us 
aren't anymore. And a lot okay. of people have an excuse to grow really, really quickly. Something that happens as well in Shaun mm. of the Dead, mm. for example, where you have a character who's a stunted growth man-child who, because zombies attack, has to do all of his growing up in one day. Right. And that's a little bit of what happens in Attack the Block, where people have to actually step up and mm. become a part of a better community, even though they may be seen as people mm. who are holding that community back. And I think it's quite brilliant how, it's, it's, how it subtly incorporates all these social issues yeah, into for a sure. um, exciting film. Joe Cornish also did a film uh, last year called The Kid Who Would Be King. Still haven't seen it. Uh, both of these films are about young people who are uh, suffused with a, a kind of relentless decency. Yeah. Uh, the John Boyega character in Attack the Block, he's presented as, you know, this this street tough who's committing crimes. Yeah. But he is actually the strongest, the bravest, and the kindest character mm-hmm. in the movie. And he's actually there in a pinch, not because he's been waiting for the violence. You see that in uh, any movies where uh, people are forced to like hunt each other, yeah. or they're in a desperate situation. Finally, and, an opportunity and, you know, to one release One guy, my inner uh, one guy has yeah. has all of these like guns. Yeah, now I can finally just shoot people. Not in that sort of way, because mm-hmm. I actually hate that. Uh, it, it's about how he understands that he's in a desperate situation. He understands that he's prepared for that sort of thing, so yeah. he, he can only do the. He only well, thinks to do the decent thing. And it's and the movie subtly raises the question of if this is the kind of person that John Boyega and other characters mm. really are. Why aren't they like that all the time? And you realize that there's a lot of actual social issues that prevent mm. people from actually becoming their best selves. Yeah. And yeah, it's a really smart, insidious, wonderful movie. The monsters are distinct and awesome. And done on a, a shoestring budget. Oh, yeah. yeah. But they look really cool. Yeah. Um, they're just these amorphous... Like, they're, they're, they're not they're just balls, dark. They balls like... Of, they're balls of fur. Uh, they're like... They were actors in, like, furry costumes. Yeah. And they gave them these glow-in-the-dark teeth. That's the only feature you see on them. Yeah. And they used, yeah, some, uh, like, very slight digital effects just to erase them to silhouette. Yeah. So, like, even if they're under bright light, you cannot see any distinctive features on them other than their their mm. outline and their teeth. And there's something really creepy about that. Yeah. It's a really, really just distinctive monster. awesome monster, awesome well. monster design. So, yeah, I'm a big fan. Mm. Um, and, um, yeah, I've, I, and I've grown to become one. So, what is your number mm. uh, nine? Uh, well, you said what I have two films for the 21st century. I'll go with my newest film, and uh-huh. that is Michael Haneke's Amour. Ah. I love Amour. I love Amour. I love Michael Haneke because he makes me feel so miserable. Uh, <laughs> That's such a uh, you thing to say. <laughs> Any film that puts an emotional anvil around your neck and throws you in the sea is a movie for me. Uh, Amour is about end-of-life care. It's about an elderly couple. Uh, the wife of the elderly couple has come down with, uh, I don't think it's ever really said in the script, if I recall. Maybe it is. But uh, she has degenerative diseases thanks to her age, and her uh, her physical faculties are going. And the movie is essentially just a long litany of what needs to be done to care for her, as she and her husband both know she is rather rapidly dying. Yeah, And... Uh, this is something, you know, people die every day. Uh, this is something that looks death right in the face and confronts what it means to care about someone. Uh, I, I appreciate movie. Uh, I appreciated this. And I started to appreciate these movies kind of early in my life, but films that accurately depicted what it was like to be older. I felt like I was getting a clue 
or I was get, being told a secret by an older filmmaker. Because mm. when you're when you're a kid, they don't ever sit you down and just tell you, "Here's what it's like to be an adult." No, they I wish kind they of, did. Actually. They kind of tantalize you with some of your privileges you'll get maybe in the next few years. Like, oh, and yeah, in a couple more years you'll be able to drive. It's yeah, it's they, not. It's they don't tell like, you like, here's what it's like to like pay bills or like yeah. uh, or, or when or, you're a teenager here's what middle age is like you're, mm. you still feel very alive but your body stops working yeah you, you feel you feel sexier than ever but now you don't look like the magazine models anymore nobody wants to photograph you and yeah it and, fucking and it, it, sucks the thing that they used to tell you mm. or, or, or you know i don't know if you're young they might still tell you this is uh, these are the best years of your life mm. what they don't explain is why yeah. And it's not because, you know, you're young. It's because you have fewer things on your plate. Yeah. And I know it seems like you got plenty when you're in high school. I, I, I was oh, insulted. Yeah, yeah. Oh, these are the best years of my life? I'm like, oh my God, how much worse does it get? Yeah. Well, and I you have nothing to care about. What are you talking about? I'm stressed out every day. And I want to go back in time and like find me in like middle school or early mm-hmm. high school and just say, okay, there's a ton of shit that you're worried about right now that is not important. Yeah. Okay, you will it's not. The, you do not need this, that math this, class. This, this. That math class that you were freaking out about. It's okay to get a B. Yeah. <laughs> it's really okay. No one will ever mm. give a shit. Mm. Chill, <laughs> just chill. Um, but when I yeah. saw when I saw Amour and and other films as well, I felt like it 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 was almost like they're trying to prepare me. Mm-hmm. Like this, this is what's coming, and not to say that this is what's coming and it's going to be bleak and awful, and death is going to stare at you with its black eyes, and you're going to turn into a pile of nothing. Uh-huh. Uh, it, it was more like the emotions you feel are going to be just as intense, and you are going to have to face this. Okay, I'm and gonna... here's the preparation, and I think Michael Haneke, uh, who typically makes incredibly grim pessimistic movies uh, you've seen funny games i have uh you've seen the piano teacher i haven't seen that one. okay i love the piano teacher too yeah, i've um, seen cachet yeah you've seen cachet i've seen, I've seen the, the white ribbon that's no really, that one's that a really one. really good yeah. one too uh yeah he, he tends to make films about sort of the subtle things in human personality that lead to outright fascism in the world uh amour is his uh his uh, human movie. It's his yeah. most humane movie. It's the one where he tends to care about the map of the human heart the most. Mm. And while at the same time never shying away from the hardest part of this. I have been trying to keep something you said in my brain because mm. I wanted to call back to it because mm. um, and I'm going to fuck up the quote now because mm. I got distracted and you, we were talking but <laughs> um you say this is Michael Hanukkah's most like humane film, and I haven't seen all of his movies, but of the movies I've seen, that's very, very true. Uh, that being said, when I watched it, I felt like Michael Hanukkah was saying, it's going to be bleak. It's going to be awful. Everything is going to be miserable. If you're lucky, you'll die first. Like, there's something that's so... No, no, no. I almost said, adolescent I almost said funereal, but no, it's fatalistic about yeah, it. The way yeah. that uh, this movie treats death. As something that is an, an inevitability, mm. but a tragedy, and it can be a very slow tragedy. And we've, um, I'm, I hope whoever is listening has never had to experience this and never has to because it sucks. But mm. a lot of us have had to experience the death of someone we care about, and it has been slow and bad, mm. just bad for everybody. 
Amour captures that in a way that I can't think of any other movie doing. A lot of other movies sort of shy away from it, or they keep it in the background a lot, mm-hmm. or they try to find some glimmer of hope in it, and there's none of that, I think, in Amour. I think you're right about the emotional intensity. And I actually, mm-hmm. I don't want to make it clear, I think this movie is fantastic. Okay. And this movie very nearly made my list. In fact, I think it is on my runners-up. Okay. Because although personally, because I've, as I've said before, I have issues with depression and anxiety and um, these kinds of movies tend to send me like, you know, screaming down into a pit of never ending despair. And I remember Mm. feeling like pissed when I watched Amour. I'm like, come on. So that's all I have to look forward to. (laughs) That's it. That's what life is. Thanks, Mike. Ruined my whole week. But the fact that the movie had that much power and the fact that it didn't feel insincere about it. Mm. And sometimes you'll see a filmmaker who is trying to make you feel bad and maybe they're successful, maybe they're not, but it feels like they're fucking with you. I think Lars von Trier Trier does this as well. Not always, but sometimes. I I put Antichrist on my runners up. But but again, that that one, he, he is trying to piss you off. Yeah. He's, he's just he's rubbing your nose and yeah. Amore doesn't doing. feel the way. Amore feels painfully honest. Mm. But for me, it's so painful that I can't fully recommend it. Mm. But I'm glad I, you I, can because you come from a different perspective. I, I can, and I feel like uh, there, there's nothing wrong with a good tragedy. I feel no. like tragedy is something we shy away from a lot in America. We tend to look to film to give us especially these days, some kind of comfort or edification Mm -hmm. or or validation. Uh, And I've I've heard you and other critics as well try to look to these kind of bleak tragedies with legitimately bleak messages trying to argue that, well, here's where the hope is hiding in here. Clearly the filmmaker was trying Mm -hmm. to put hope in there. Maybe not. I think... But that doesn't mean our reaction is ingenuous. Definitely not. But I think it is perfectly acceptable to use art... And to use you know, philosophy and faith and all of the big parts of your life mm-hmm. to express lamentation. Yes. No, I 100% mm. agree with this. And I would never, mm. would never want for artists to feel like they can't tell stories like this. Okay. What I can say is that for me, someone who has a legitimate phobia of dying, mm. regardless of cause, just dying itself scares the shit out of me. Um, this movie push my buttons in a pretty bad way. <laughs> yeah, but yeah. I, I acknowledge that the reason it was able to do that is because it is supremely powerful and extremely sensitive. Right. Um, but I do feel like people should know, do not put a moron just for funsies. A moron is going to put you through the fucking ringer, but it is excellent. And if that sounds like something that you would enjoy or you would get something out of, please see it. It is fantastic. But it's one of those movies that I thought was absolutely incredible that I don't think I'll ever watch again. Okay. <laughs> just because it, it was Fair. so harrowing, I, I don't know if I can do that intentionally again. I right. just, yeah. Um, however, uh, to move on to my next pick, um, I, I'm not against movies that are bleak. I'm not mm. against movies that are cynical and mean. And the next newest movie on my list, I feel, uh, definitely falls into those categories. It's Takashi Miike's Audition. <laughs> Yay. Audition is a movie I, that is so hard to recommend because you don't want to give away too much. Well, and the problem is, uh, you'll find Audition, and this is uh, another problem with those hashtags, is if you were to put Audition in the uh, romantic comedy section... Uh-huh. It would be a lot more powerful yeah. because it would surprise you a little bit. Because because uh, the first half of the movie is a romantic comedy, and then it and then it shifts. Mm. And 
it gets very dark, and that's all I'm going to say. If you've seen the movie, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Mm. If you've heard of the movie and you know like where it goes, because there are things that have been ruined, it's the internet, you know what I'm talking about. It explores the dimmer shades a bit, yes. If, if, on the other hand, you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'm going to respect that, because Audition is one of those movies where the unexpected elements aren't just right at the end. Mm. They're like... Earlier, they're early enough in the movie that it's kind of hard to talk about it otherwise. But here's the basic setup. Uh, there's a man, I think he's a widower, and he's young enough that he wants to date again, maybe find love again. And he doesn't know how to go about it. And he is convinced to pull a, a, a sort of a little con in which they put out a personals ad, like a Craigslist ad, saying that they are casting for a reality television show. Or, a, or was it a singing show? I'm trying to remember. It's been a while since I've seen it. Um, they're, they're casting for a show. Yeah. And what they're doing is they're just bringing in a whole bunch of women who meet the criteria that he's looking for in an ideal girlfriend. Mm. It's all a facade. You're not actually putting on a show. But he's hoping to meet the right woman, and he which, does. Which, which sounds like that kind of friendly deception you'd see in a romantic comedy. Yeah, it's the kind of thing that, like... You know, people who are a little oblivious might think it's kind of cute and funny. Mm. But if you think about it too much, it's pretty dark. Takeshi Maike has thought of that. <laughs> and the movie does eventually acknowledge that mm. there's something really troubling at the heart of this kind of romantic deception. And as the film goes along and as he meets this really nice girl and they start dating, you start realizing that there's something very wrong here. Mm. And it's hard to put your finger on what it is. And by the time the movie finally tips its hand a little in a way that's... Well, just the shot itself, I think, is one of the best shots in cinema. Because <laughs> you're, you're watching it and you're like, this is um, not what I expected to be looking at right now. What's that in the back? Oh, God! <laughs> that's all I'm going to say. Um, and then the movie takes a, a darker turn. Um, this is the kind of movie that I think if Hitchcock were alive today, he would like fall in love with. It yeah. is so incredible at playing with our expectations of what cinema could be. and But doing so in a way that makes a lot of sense. It's not like the movie we thought we were watching just stopped. It suddenly gets a perspective shift that was always kind of there. But because one thing that we thought we knew isn't quite what we thought we knew, all of a sudden, everything that all the safety is off, anything can happen, mm. and some of the most horrible fucking things <laughs> can happen, and mm. it's a shock. It's yeah. a shock, but it's not just a shock. And I think the fact that it is this insidious, it calls in, it calls into question the entire genre of sort of mischievous love stories where love stories are based off of little lies or yeah. little deceptions or, oh, I only dated you uh, for a wager, but now I love you, so it's fine, right? Mm. Okay, I'll be mad for half an act and then we'll get together. That's not how that works. That's actually uh, fucked up what that guy did and she's all that. Like, why is this okay? It's not. Hmm. And I think audition I've is. I've always had an issue because when, when, when the when the yeah we've talked about this before, but yeah when when those characters turns out they have le like legit chemistry, and eventually he says, oh well, I, it turns out I started dating you because of a wager, but I actually feel about it now. And I would just love one scene in a movie where we like ditch that little bit where they're mad and they just skip to the end. Yeah. Because it's always so tiresome that bit where they have to yeah. manufacture a reason to get them back together again. I would just like she to just, just not get just, back together. Or, or she just say, okay, you lied to me a little bit, but clearly we've been having a legitimately good time. Mm -hmm. We have some legitimate chemistry here. Now that I'm mad at you, 
but the truth is out. Let's just continue. Well, there are different, there are varying degrees of deception. And mm. there are some that, like, if someone's told me, mm. like, I'm married, but, like, if, if when I was dating, mm. someone had told me, and we've been dating for a month, said, yeah, you know, I wasn't going to go out with you, but a friend of mine, like, just dared me to give you a shot, and I'm glad I did. Mm. That's not so much deception as it is, you know... <sighs> Trying to let outside circumstances mm. dictate what you... You're basically trying to step out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of, like, little deceptions that are kind of okay. But when you're basically, like, an American by gambling on people's virginity, it gets creepy. Yeah, that, well, that's, that's pretty You know, like, yeah. so that kind of insidiousness mm. is, I think, something that Takeshi Miike in this film acknowledges is regardless of whatever other intentions or whatever other decencies you have in your life, there's a distinct ugliness to that. Mm. And I love how critical this movie is. I love how frightening this movie is if you think about it at all I think it's an incredible motion picture and uh, again it's really cynical mm. <laughs> but it's exceptionally good and there's a reason to put it on my top 10 it's, it's in my runners up I do okay. like it a lot what's uh, your number 8 uh, let's go for my uh, my other more recent film that would be Mike Lee's All or Nothing oh interesting uh, Mike Lee is a filmmaker I kind of adore and I wish I had seen more of his movies. I've only seen, well, I've actually seen a good number of them, but I haven't seen them all. He's, he's uh, rather prolific. He's rather prolific. Uh, he's best known for, uh, and critics use this phrase most often to describe him, kitchen sink realism, which is mm. to say uh, a, a kind of realistic filmmaking that is really preoccupied with the plight of the working classes. All or Nothing, I believe, is kind of the... The, or example of a Mike Lee movie. That's interesting uh, because it's not the one people talk about. No, people about talk those. about Naked the most. People That's talk about Naked, like, Topsy Turvy, mm-hmm. and maybe Secrets and Lies. Those are like the well, big That's right, three. which was up for Academy Awards yeah. in the late 90s. Those are all excellent uh, films. Yeah, Actually, all, I haven't seen Naked, but the other two are excellent. Uh, well, I think All or Nothing is superior to those because uh, t- those other movies tend to be a little bit more like directly about something. Mm-hmm. Uh, naked is about sort of modern nihilism and how that's kind of a poison. Uh, Topsy Turvy is very much about Gilbert and Sullivan and love of the theater. And I mm-hmm. adore that movie. I think I, th- uh, I like its kitchen sink approach to yeah. just what theater was like 120 years ago or whatever yeah, it was. Yeah. Like there's something that's like, there's so many historical fictions that feel so fictional and that mm-hmm. one feels really very, genuine very natural yeah. and yeah. E- even the cutesy moments like oh what's this oh a pen with ink inside of it how, dr- how delightful I think he gets uh, a little too hung up on those moments He's, he does a that few, a lot there's a few of those yeah. but yeah, I, yeah. I, I think they're fine it's they're, cute it's yeah. cute it's it's a nitpick at most mm. um, and uh, and of Lies is you know about family and racial politics all or nothing is very much about just the plight of the working class and how the people who work in the it, it starts with Timothy Timothy Small and Leslie Manville. They live in this tiny flat. They have uh, they're they're none too smart. He works as a cab driver and he spends uh, like once a week digging through couch cushions looking for just enough money to get by for the day. And he drives a cab. Uh, he kind of grunts uh, and instead of just sort of speaking, uh, they don't really communicate in any kind of. Uh, m- like meaningful way they're not big conversations they just sort of talk to each other in a very basic kind of way Mm. giving each other basic information as to what's going on throughout the day and then they go to bed at night and the cycle repeats 
And you do realize through this mind-numbing cycle of just staying above a level of poverty and pushing hard just so you can barely get by, you realize that the only thing anybody longs for in the entire world is love. These people are reaching out and looking for someone to love them, and they're too busy to see it or say it. It's heartbreaking, and yet it is exhilarating because it's something we all need. Yeah. Uh, I feel like Mike Lee really just put his hand out and said, this is what a Mike Lee film should look like. <laughs> what is a Mike Lee film? It's all or nothing. It's I, this one. It's interesting when you put it that way because there's a lot of filmmakers out there who have such a distinct uh, style, a way of looking mm. at the world, a way of telling stories. Uh, and if they're prolific enough, they've told a lot of different stories that way or in a similar way. And um, sometimes it's interesting to try to figure out maybe what isn't necessarily the filmmaker's best film, but what's the one that's the most them? Yeah. Like, I think it's pretty easy to call Goodfellas the most Scorsese movie. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's right. probably pretty Luca, fair. get away from the trash can. Yeah, I'll get him. I'll get him. You're back. All right. Uh, um, I don't know. I'm trying to think of, like, what's the most James Cameron movie. It's probably Aliens. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. But, uh, yeah, I, again, I haven't seen enough Mike Lee to say what's the most Mike Lee movie, mm -hmm. but I'm actually disappointed now that I haven't seen this one. It, it's kind of odd because this is one of his least acclaimed movies, uh, or mm -hmm. least talked about anyway. Um, I guess Another Year, nobody talks about that one anymore. That was uh, a good one. I yeah, like that one. And yeah. Happy Go Lucky is really quite good. But yeah, I missed that Yeah, one. nobody talks about that one either, but... Um, yeah, this one really, like, it wasn't up for, like, a lot of major awards. People yeah. didn't talk about how Timothy Spall gives one of the best performances of his career in it. Which is uh, saying something. Which, because he always gives I good mean, performances. I mean, even in Mike Lee movies, that's saying something. Yeah. I think his performance in uh, Mr. Turner yeah. was robbed <laughs> for an Academy Award. I don't even think he was nominated. It's ridiculous. No, no. And that he was able to communicate so much without moving his face and yeah. without speaking any words, he just sort of grunted. Yeah, it's amazing. And that was the whole movie. Mm. How are you feeling? How are you feeling, Mr. Turner? Mm. <laughs> really? What an interesting man! And it works. Yeah. It's not a joke. It's not a Monty Python sketch. Mm. Like, it's really incredible. Um, okay, that's a that's a great pick, and I'll have to check that one out. Thank I, I you. I loved All or Nothing. I, I love that there's something on your list I haven't seen. Mm -hmm. uh, the next one on my list, uh, I'm going to say it right now, mm -hmm. like early on. Because it's a movie we've talked about several times recently in a variety of different contexts. Okay. Um, and there's no way I'm not putting it on my list. Like, yeah, I'm not even going to put it on a runners-up because I can talk about something else. It's just that good and that much of a classic. Uh, it is The Adventures of Robin Hood. Okay, yeah. That was on our uh, our uh, Only the Best podcast. Yeah, but we've also talked about it um, on an episode of, like, The Two Shot a long time ago. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's one of the most important movies ever made, at least to the action genre. Mm -hmm. uh, the action genre existed before The Adventures of Robin Hood, but The Adventures of Robin Hood is one of the handful of movies that changed the way action movies were done. Mm -hmm. It changed the uh, the spirit. It changed the structure. Um, it changed the way they sounded. It changed the way uh, sword fights would be sort of presented uh, it's a glorious Technicolor masterpiece. And on top of everything, I think it also uh, created, you were talking about, like, what's the most Mike Lee movie? Mm. This is the most Robin Hood movie. <laughs> There's a lot of other uh -oh. Robin Hood movies. Many of them are quite good, but all of them are in the shadow mm. of the adventures of Robin Hood starring Errol Flynn. Um, this is the one where he wears the green tights and gets away with it. Mm. Like, he looks amazing. 
and you buy every single second and the sword fights are elaborate and fantastic and everything is merry and full of adventure but not without stakes it's not it's not light and and frothy it's kind of blithe and and sensual actually just how alive everyone mm. in this movie is even and even like the stunts were done in an incredible way the uh, the 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 people in this movie who are shot with arrows, they could have done the usual thing where someone shoots an arrow and you cut to a guy who's holding an arrow in his chest going, ah! Boom. Mm. They paid stuntmen extra to get shot with arrows. <laughs> Just pat him up. Yep. And they say, here's an extra, and remember it was, like an extra 50 bucks and we'll get an expert marksman to shoot you. He will not kill you but seriously, don't move. It's really going to hurt. <laughs> yeah, this is going to suck. So just, just getting shot with a, in a bulletproof vest. Like, you won't die, but mm. it's going to suck. But they did it. They, they had this incredible commitment to making this the ultimate action epic. Mm. And it's still one of them. It has this larger-than-life legendary quality. And on top of it all, it's Robin Hood. Robin Hood, when done well, isn't just a story about a fun-loving vigilante. It's a story about social class. It's a story about co uh, corruption. Wealth, and, inequality, yeah, and, and all these things. The, the, one of the greatest lines in movie history, one of my favorite lines in movie history, is when Prince John, played by the great uh, Claude Rain, says, You speak treason! And Robin Hood says, Fluently. <laughs> <laughs> Which is something you can just imagine someone saying to like Donald Trump. <laughs> it's like, you speak treason! Fluently, Donnie. <laughs> Fluently. And then he's like, what does that mean? Okay. Um, I, mean, I, I picture him more like Colonel Mustard. Are you trying to make me look stupid in front of the other guests? Need any help from me, sir? That's right! <laughs> uh, politics. But anyway, uh, this movie is, uh, yeah, by modern action movie standards, if you're used to Michael Bay stuff, it might seem a little slow, but when you realize it in the context of its time, and when you just think of it as a grand old you know, medieval adventure, there's nothing quite like it. Mm. It's wonderful. And we talk about it in a lot more detail on a couple other podcasts, so I feel like we can just move on unless you have any other thoughts you mm. want to add for posterity. Nope, I've said it all. Yeah. Uh, you've said it. I've, I compared it to Dracula. Yeah. And that whenever we think of the character, we think of this particular movie. Yeah. The, all, all Robin Hoods that have come since have been a reaction to this one, uh, whether uh, to repeat it or to try to change the tune of it a little bit. Yeah. Which makes it like the one Robin Hood. Yeah. And Robin Hood mm. is such a significant cultural figure, mm. uh, pop culture, and I think actual culture. Yeah, he's, yeah. he's a symbol. Yeah, in, in um, Western literature. And, yeah. And it, I think it, it's a society. There, the there's not like of, one, I guess, Ivanhoe, but there's not like one Robin Hood like, story. I would actually argue that it's interesting to th when you see like a lot of the things people think that makes Batman like so interesting and distinctive. Mm. And like it's all there in Robin Hood. Mm. It's all there in Zorro. These characters predate that. You know, mm. these guys who were these rich foppish dandies and nobody thought anything of them but they're actually going out of their way to sort of renege on their privilege mm. and sort of do something to sort of make the world better even though everyone else around them who grew up around them is just mm. a greedy fucker you yeah know? have you heard the, ever read the scarlet pimpernel i never read it oh okay. but i know that's another one right yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Often called like the first like proper quote superhero story. I, I, I think Robin Hood predates it, mm -hmm. but like the even they even talk about it, like you know Robin Hood's kind of a superhero name. Mm -hmm. His name isn't Robin Hood; it's Robin of Luxley. Mm -hmm. The Hood is. They even say that in the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves. Like once on that makes him sound scary. Robin the Hood. <laughs> no, <laughs> makes him sound cool. You idiot. <laughs> um, but uh, the Scarlet oh, Pimpernel. Oh, how are you doing there, Robin Hood? 
Doing just fine, thanks. The one, uh, uh, I've, I never read The Scarlet Pimpernel, but I did see Richard E. Grant started The Scarlet Pimpernel on like a couple of TV movies in the 80s or 90s. Okay, nice. Um, and I remember seeing at least one of those and liking it, but my memory of it is a little hazy. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yes, that's also in the tradition. I just right. couldn't speak to it because I didn't know it very well from personal experience. Right. Uh, what's your What's your number seven, I guess? Uh, I don't have like something that's like adventurous to really oh, pair with it. All of my films are kind of like downers or complex dramas. Um, no, so uh, you you're know, you're on brand. You know, I'm going to do a double feature for you. Oh wow! These are two films that both start with the letter A. Yes, they make the perfect double feature. I've mentioned them in a pair frequently because they are the same story. One is a remake of the other, and it's Douglas Sirk's All That Heaven Allows. Ah. With Rainer Werner Fassbender's Ali, Fear Eats the Soul. Okay. Um, All That Heaven Allows is uh, from 1955, and uh, it is about a widow who uh, is just sort of committed to living life alone. And her two children are really concerned, and in fact, uh, they're concerned that she's going to be too horny. Uh, Now, this is... (laughs) There's actually a scene, like, right at the beginning of the movie where uh, where her college-age daughter, you know, with the, the Betty Page hair and the ponytail and the thick glasses, she, you know, she reads as 1950s nerd, steps forward, and she steps up right up close to the camera, whips off her glasses, and kind of thoughtfully says, it's been said in certain studies that women your age think about sex a lot more often. And then she puts her glasses back on, and the film continues apace. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's about how... Uh, uh, a, a, a middle-aged woman might be a little too horny to live alone. Nice. Uh, but they're not really sure, like, <laughs> they're just concerned about her. They express concern. Into her life comes the studliest, handsomest, most heterosexual man available, Rock Hudson, Ooh. who, uh... <laughs> look, there's gay dripping all over the works of Douglas Sirk. Yes. I'm not, I'm not going to pretend otherwise. But, uh, yeah, Rock Hudson is this kind of a uh, free spirit mountain man who lives off like, lives off the land and wears flannel and chops wood and he's much much younger than she is mm. what a scandal and they start to develop this uh kind of scandalous romance in this very soap opera kind of way that's where Douglas Sirk worked was in this sort of heightened sense of melodrama and a lot of the drama comes from how appropriate is it to spend time with somebody who's much, much younger than you to actually date and have a relationship with uh, somebody not in your age group, especially in the 1950s. Mm. And uh, when something goes south in their relationship, there's a really wonderful scene near the middle of the movie where they realize that the kids realize they don't know that she's been carrying on this affair, but they come in and say, oh, well, this guy you were seeing, I I see that you've been thinking about dating him. They've been fucking, but uh, you've been thinking about dating him. But you don't have to worry about him anymore. Here's a television. Uh, that's what's gonna spend. That's what she's gonna spend time with is the TV. And this is 1955. Yeah. It's this new invention, and already it's the devil. And there's this wonderful Circean <laughs> shot where we zoom very slowly into the television. We see Jane Wyman's uh, reflection in the screen, and we see her crying in the reflection, just yeah. miserable that she's living in this box now. Yeah. Uh, all that heaven allows is terrific. It's it's funny, but it's also very heartfelt. Uh, it seems really corny to modern audiences, but I think that's one of its greatest strengths. Mm-hmm. For the same story, uh, but with a heaping helpful of 
outright darkness and cynicism. Take away all of that corniness and all of the humor. And instead of it just being a younger man, have it be a younger black man in Germany. Mm-hmm. And you have Ali Fear Eats the Soul by Rainer Werner Fassbender, maybe one of his best movies. And Rainer Werner Fassbender was prolific. He made a film a week. Uh, <laughs> you think Fass- it's an exaggeration, no, but no, Fass- look at where filmography. It's ridiculous. Yeah, Fassbender died very early. He, was, he wasn't even 40 by the time he died. And he had already made, like, I think 100 movies. It was insane how prolific he was. And uh, Ali Fear Eats the Soul, or Fear Eats the Soul Up, which I think is the uh, the literal translation of the German title. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's the exact, exact same story. It's about uh, Brigitte Mira and uh, El Hedi Ben Salem, who, yeah, she they now it's sort of transposed into a 1970s uh, German kind of apartment block. Everything's a little bit grimmer. Things are a little bit more dour. And these two people are feeling a lot more wrath and rage about their state in the world rather than this kind of melancholy. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they find each other and can cling on to each other is, in this film, a little bit more of an act of defiance. Hmm. They're just sort of spitting it in people's faces. And indeed, they confront people in the movie. Uh, I, I really, really love it. Uh, the first time I saw it, it was on the big screen. I was really lucky to see it on a, on a re-release. And it just really wrapped me up. And seeing those two films back to back, seeing these two perspectives on what is essentially a very similar story and showing that these types of taboo relationships are indeed things of liberation was a very exhilarating message to hear. Uh, it also helps that, uh, you know, I said that gay is dripping all over Douglas Sirk movies. Fassbinder was gay. Hmm. And so you could also see these as both of them as metaphors for the queer experience, hmm. having the, the quote, the forbidden relationship yeah. and finding it well, actually free because you actually get to live as who you are. I actually haven't seen all that heaven allows, but I did see Todd Haynes as far from heaven, which is the which, third part of the trifecta. <laughs> yeah. When that movie uh, takes a lot of the stuff that Sirk uh, was obviously getting at with all of that gay subtext and he makes he's actually able to tell a very similar story, mm. but here he's allowed to actually address it because he's not working under the production yeah, yeah. code and he's allowed to make that text. Mm. That's there, there's two men kissing on camera yeah. in that one. Yeah. Um, okay, awesome. Thank mm. you for that. I actually haven't seen either of those movies. Uh, I think they're both on the Criterion Channel. I need right to get now. to them. So, yeah. I, there's, everyone's got blind spots, and maybe we'll get to them on the streaming yeah. club one of these days. Um, okay, well, uh, my next pick, I want you to imagine... Like a movie, whether it's like a DVD, okay, a, movie. a DVD, like a physical movie, like All a right. DVD or a VHS or a Laserdisc or a 35 millimeter print, whatever. It's my VHS of Batman. That's fine. Okay. And you imagine that here is this this container that contains this movie. It contains all the the romance and the adventure and the drama and the sadness. And, and you realize that it's kind of like a, it's kind of got a soft center. You know, like it's got like this bit in the middle that's mm-hmm. all just just there for emotion and it's trying to make the world, you know, more beautiful by it being there. And I want you to imagine that movie you've got in your head and I want you to plunk it in a pot of boiling water because there aren't a lot of movies more hard boiled than the asphalt jungle. <laughs> OK. Yeah. And I wanted to really think about like what the word hard boiled means, because it's something we throw out really easily. It's to basically render something that should be soft and mm. like full of life and render it hard and almost inaccessible. Mm. That's the Asphalt Jungle. It is one of the earliest uh, film noirs. It is certainly one of the films that is considered like, this is film noir. This is a proto film noir. Mm. This is exactly what we think of when we think of the film noir genre. Um, 
And it's also a film that is one of the earliest examples of the heist genre and probably is the film that sort of put it all together for the first time in the version that we know it now. You get a bunch of, uh, you know, hard-edged, mean criminals, each with their own different personality, mm-hmm. and they rally around a guy who's got a dynamite plan. This place seems impregnable, mm-hmm. but I've got a plan. And it requires every single step of this plan to go absolutely perfectly. And I know that because we're all professional criminals and none of us have any human foibles, uh, that or, or, or flaws, or, or, or flaws, or, no, certainly no one would, no one here would betray each other because that wouldn't be in our mutual best interests, right? I mean, that's throwing a lot of risk. Uh, uh, that maybe you alone would get caught, but yeah, okay, if you get away with it, you get everything, but that's not worth it, right? We wouldn't do that. No, 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 no. (laughs) Surely no one here is dating a young Marilyn Monroe who has expensive tastes and would destroy everything that we're working so meticulously for and that we can totally do very, very easily because of human frailty. (laughs) When you see a slob get a good steady job <laughs> and he smells from Vitalis and Barbasol. I'm nice. sorry, I'm sorry. Um, but uh, yeah, that might seem like a bit of a cliche. When Asphalt Jungle did it, it was new. It was the first one. It was the first one. And I think by partially by virtue of it being the first one, but mostly by virtue of it being a film by the great John Huston. When you see the original version of a lot of things that we now take for granted, you realize that there is a really human reason why we do that. Mm. It's A lot of people will do the shit the, that Asphalt Jungle does and not even really think about it. This is just what's expected of the genre. We have mm. to have a montage where we get a bunch of people together. We have to have the scene where we're going over the plan and we're all talking about it. And the scene where someone betrays everybody. And that It becomes a formula. But the original reason why the formula was created was extremely natural and based on the characters involved in the story Hmm. and the way that that story was presented. This movie is like, got one foot in the twilight zone for how (laughs) shadowy and mysterious it feels. Well, it almost feels like it's not reality. Yeah, exactly. It's it's one of those movies that like feels like... Not just a shadow, it's just not anything recognizable as earth exactly and that's something that i think it makes it one of the like ideal examples of the film noir genre is because it's the one that started to exaggerate it Mm. to the point where a lot of the things that we now recognize as parts of the genre become the only thing we can see Mm. Uh, when you look at something like robert rodriguez's sin city which is fun Mm. but extremely superficial in most ways um, they're really getting by on a lot of the style, and the style becomes very fetishized. Here, the style is representative of the darkness within the characters' hearts and their inability to behave humanely around people and the people who are human beings and the people who do have personal frailties or loves or those are the people who tend to get things wrong or they get screwed over in a world where... Everything you do is governed by greed and pain mm. and living outside of any sort of system of propriety or mm. ethics or morality. It is one of the great crime movies. It is uh, one of the great heist movies to this day. Mm. And I think it is one of those movies that you cannot sort of remove from film history without taking a lot with it. Yeah. Like yeah. if you pulled this thread an entire genre of cinema and indeed a lot of the film noir genre and mm. a lot of different ways of you know filming movies and it, all of these things would go with it. Yeah, and yeah. I wouldn't recognize film history anymore. 
Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah. Uh, it, it's it's kind of odd because it is an origin, and yet people don't talk about this one as frequently as they do the things that came after it. Even something like Rafifi, which yeah. also feels extremely revolutionary and goes through a lot of similar stuff. Mm. Um, it, yeah, it's not quite the same thing. That already feels like it's playing off of what Asphalt Jungle laid down. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, uh, speaking of films about uh, people who are kind of bastards and people who are bastards to each other, I'm going to talk about All About Eve. Uh, All About Eve is great. It's also uh, on my list. Okay, good. Yes. <laughs> because it's one of the greatest movies ever made. Uh, All About Eve came out in the mid-50s. Uh, I remember reading an essay by Roger Ebert, and he said, uh, getting old was a good career move for Betty Davis. <laughs> uh, it's a great way to put that. I'll yeah. always remember that. Uh, yeah, it, and it's about uh, Betty Davis plays... Uh, a theater actress who is c- c- very concerned about her age and her image. She yeah. has spent most of her career playing sort of y- like young ingenues. Holy shit, this is the same year as... This is 1950. It's not yeah. even mid-50s. You said oh, mid-50s. mid-50s, so. yeah, 50. No, no, it's like, it's the same year as Asphalt Jungle, actually. Right, 50, okay. So good, then they go they go well yeah. together. My sister was even better than I thought. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, uh, this is something that Betty Davis was going through in real life. She had actually you know, started her career as a young woman. Mm-hmm. She was uh, played... A, a good part of her career was playing these sort of young, pretty ingenues. And, uh, but you know, time slows for no one. So, yeah. uh, and this, she, and this industry is merciless merc- to older, especially act, older women. To, yeah. yeah. To especially to women, but yeah. you know, to everybody, but especially to women. And, uh, this like, is something that even though she's incredibly smart, she's way talented. Uh, Betty Davis is freaking amazing in this movie. I don't, I, I would say this is her best performance, although I haven't seen them all. Yeah. Uh, she's astounding. In it. Yeah. She is really, really great. And, uh, even though she is maybe one of the most interesting people in this movie and indeed in cinema, uh, she is still bogged down by this innate fear that a, she's getting too old for certain roles. She can't contain, you know, keep her career at the same clip it is. And that her much younger boyfriend is going to leave her Mm -hmm. and start. And he's a, he's a playwright and he's going to start writing plays for younger, better actresses. And she frequently, and she manifests these, uh, sometimes in bouts of sadness, sometimes in bouts of rage, uh, in the best scene in the movie, she manifests it in uh, throwing the worst possible party, <laughs> we're, and that's where we get the famous line of dialogue. You know, what would are, are we going to get a smooth night tonight, Margot? Are we going to get something really rough? And she just says, "Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night." Great Ooh, line. Love it. And, then, and then she drinks and drinks and insists that the piano player at the party plays nothing but Liebestrom, like the, the most <laughs> depressing piece of music. And look, there's Marilyn Monroe in the back. Uh, it's so it's, it's a better a movie, but it's a, funny. It's a hilarious. And yeah, it's it's yeah. Uh, narrated by George Saunders, who plays uh, this Atticus DeRitz, this very mm. erudite... Uh, he's play, a critic. Play, uh, yeah, play critic. He's, he's a theater critic. critic he's and, a theater uh, critic who can... He's, and he's one of the... People talk about the power of film critics, like, oh, they're just trying to ruin the movies or whatever. We're nothing compared to theater critics of like the first half of the century. <laughs> like Dorothy Parker or Robert Benchley. They, they would they deliberately could, ruin careers. They, they yeah. could close a play in one night mm-hmm. if they didn't like it. They had that much power. And they were right a lot of the time. <laughs> That's the damn thing. They were geniuses. But regardless, they had power. Mm. So when you get to George Sanders' character in here, and he is played... You know, one, he's just the smartest man in the room and he knows it and that makes him a shithead. But towards the end of the film, when things have all taken a turn and this young woman uh, may or may not have manipulated this older actress in order to usurp her career and and start her own. That's the story. Eve tries to kind of move in on Margot's territory. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When 
George Sanders catches wind of what Eve has been doing. Hmm. There's a scene where he lays out everything that's going to happen to her. <laughs> it is one of the most exquisitely mm. malevolent scenes ever written. Mm. He is one of the great bastards and frankly so is Eve. Like they're oh, ju- well, they're, yeah. they're they're just they, they almost deserve each other, but I think when he lays out just when you finally all of these things that you may have not even consciously been doing, mm. once he lays them all out consciously, you realize just how twisted and insane these people are and with the industry is this mm. is a very mean movie about the industry it's mm. almost amazing that the industry rallied around it this movie got 14 academy award nominations <laughs> and i think it won i think it won like six and, and yeah. like like it's was a huge 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 film and it's just as sharp and mean as ever. Like, if this movie was made now, people would say, Jesus Christ, tone it down a little. <laughs> the only thing they would have played up was the queer subtext. Oh, yeah. Uh, there, there's this idea. First of all, Margot has a, a clearly lesbian-like uh, stage hand, like an assistant. Yeah. Who, like, works backstage with her. Clearly, those two are lovers. Uh, and, yeah. And then uh, Ann Baxter, who plays Eve, uh, has a bit later on where she's, like, faking something on a telephone, and she needed the help from, like, the local apartment marm, mm-hmm. and they walk off with their arms around each other like mm-hmm. they're about to go do it. So, the, yeah, they, the, they just would have probably played that up a little more. The modern movie that I think about the most when I think about All Body was actually the favorite. Yeah, it's um, a, yeah, yeah, it, yeah, yeah, it's it, fair. It's, it's, totally fair. It's, it's about how, like, there is a system in place hmm. where everyone has a very rigid place within it, and the only way to get ahead is to be the it, bigger bastard, is to yeah. tear someone down on the way up and to make yourself feel indispensable, hmm. even if you're not. And it's also the way that just about how people destroy each other and how that can be in someone's personal best interest, even though it will annihilate their soul. Hmm. Um, yeah. Fucking amazing movie. I'm so glad you played I, it. I love it so much. All right. Well, that was, I'll, I'll just say, that was one of mine. I'm not going right. to say it again. So why don't Don't's you go to your number five? All right. Um, how do I, what do I segue into from All About Eve? Well, um, speaking of creatures that want to eat you from the inside, uh, <laughs> why don't we talk about Ridley Scott's Alien? <laughs> It's, it was a stretch, but you uh, got there. Uh, okay, never you mind. Got there. Let's just no segue. <laughs> Alien is a very good film. It sure is. Moving on. Mm. Um, no, yeah, no. In a, fact, a, I'm a, actually um, I, I'm actually kind of bummed out about how much Alien has been talked about because I think people associate Alien with sort of the the film series it spawned at large, rather than going back to the original and realizing just what a fucking frightening horror movie it is. In a vacuum. Like, it's one of those movies that context... Like, well, yes. In space, no one can hear you scream. That's true. But, uh, no, like, when you think about the movie in its original context, as Mm. a standalone film, no room left for sequels. Mm. Yes, James Cameron had a great idea for a sequel, which is like, what if there was more than one of those things? We know there were. There what were if, eggs there. That's organic. What, but the what, if, what if it was, yeah, and, and yeah. instead of being just like working class stiffs, it was a bunch of dudes with guns. Yes. Yeah. Well, he had more on his mind than that. But regardless, uh, the original Alien mm-hmm. is a standalone story. And when you start looking at it in the context of Prometheus or Alien Resurrection or Alien vs. Predator, it starts to lose a lot of that. Uh, sort of haunted house atmosphere. Yeah, this this yeah. isolation. It doesn't. It no longer well, feels isolated. It doesn't. Which is feel, one of the things that made it so scary. They're alone. The isolation.
revelation and it doesn't feel mysterious anymore. Yeah. Like there's no, we there's, know so much about there's the no creatures. mystique yeah. whatsoever in aliens. It's like, Oh, mm. and that's where the eggs come from out of the butt of a big alien. It's like, Oh, well, that's what eggs I, come from. I could have predicted that you didn't surprise me. Okay. It's just a big critter now. Okay. Your, your, your mm. preference for alien over aliens is completely understandable. Mm. Uh, your anti-aliens rhetoric has no place on this podcast, <laughs> and I will tell you why. I will continue to, to rail against well, aliens. I will tell you why. It's because my number one mm. is Alien and Aliens Tide. Oh, okay. Because Fair. I think they're actually, I think you have raised an excellent point, mm. which is that we need to remember to look at Alien as its own thing. Because as its own thing, there was nothing else like it. We had yeah. had other films in space. We'd even had horror movies in space. But we had never had a movie that had Ridley Scott's attention to specificity, to detail, to mm. production design, to utilitarian uh, uh, aspects of the ship. So that it felt 100% real. It never felt like a set. Yeah. Even the things that don't make sense feel like they should make sense. Like the, like mo- the mother room. The mother yeah. is the, the name of the, the onboard artificial intelligence computer. Yeah. And yeah, Tom Skerritt goes into this room and it's just covered with lights. And what do those lights do? I don't know. It's not there's important. a lot of atmosphere in there. Uh, I think they lit... They, it looks like they lit the scene with those lights because it's really mm-hmm. kind of dim in that scene. Right, but it's the rest of the ship isn't white. Yeah. So like it's this sort it's actually of... actually kind other, of grimy. Yeah, it's this other space. It actually feels like the center of the egg that is the ship so mm-hmm. that uh towards the end when you find out that one of the uh, other characters has been an android this whole time and he bleeds sperm it's, it really yeah, starts fitting in yeah, and it's, it's more like milk but yeah i mean look this hr giger created the monsters there's mm-hmm. a very uh technosexual mm-hmm. uh element to the overall design work uh, from the uh, space suits that have big white heads like sperm to mm. the uh, vaginal creatures to the... Well, uh, I mean, the alien itself, it, its head looks like a phallus. Its head looks like a phallus, mm. but the face huggers look like a vagina with legs. Yeah, yeah. Um, they are trying to bring into outer space this sort of objective idea that we have. And when we think about space travel, we think about science. They're trying to bring biology back into it. Mm. And not just biology, but the parts of biology that make people uncomfortable because we don't talk about them a lot. Mm. We don't look at organic... We, we don't look at people as a collection of, of like, kidneys and guts mm. and blood and veins. We don't look well, at I, people I, I, as I, a cacophony I, of those things. But when we're introduced to the I, alien I, life... Outside of a Cronenberg movie, anyway. Yeah, or maybe in, like, a, you know, a medical class when you're opening up a cadaver, you're looking at people like that. But most people don't are uncomfortable with that kind of sort of reduction of humanity into its own bits and parts. But when we are introduced to the alien, we are introduced to the fleshy bits that make us Mm. uncomfortable to look at because they represent things that we have built up in our society. A lot of shame over, which brings up a lot of other issues in the film. Like the film is, um, you know, it it film is very feminist in Mm. a lot of ways. The ashes character is very much, you know, a a, a symbol Mm. of hateful masculinity in a lot of ways and and tries to kill a woman with a porno mag at one point mm-hmm. talking about symbolism yeah yeah it, and and then he starts bleeding yeah. what looks like male reproductive mm-hmm. fluid these are not subtle images um but because ridley scott isn't overly interested in things like world building or mm-hmm. anything everything makes an internal sense but he's not interested in like telling us all these details about the world if they come up they've been thought about but if they don't, that's it. It's about isolation. It is about people who are working class, not fancy scientists. Mm. And it is about an encounter with the unknown and the unknown 
should scare the shit out of us, according mm-hmm. to Alien, and it's brilliant. And the reason why I pair this with Aliens mm-hmm. is because I think Aliens is the other side of that coin. Mm-hmm. Whereas the original is this standalone nightmare in space. I think James Cameron is interested in the way that people confront their nightmares. And mm. in the case of Aliens, we have uh, Ripley, who has been traumatized mm. by the experience, and finds out that actually, when, by the time she got home, due to the complexities of space travel and a, a mishap on her mm. cryo sleep tube or whatever, she's got nothing to come back to. Everyone no. she knows is already dead. So well, all she's it, got it, left are her nightmares. In, in the logic of the first film, that would have happened anyway, but yeah. Yeah, whatever. But like, but here we're, we're putting it face forward. Yeah. And all she's got left are her nightmares, and she's given an opportunity to go back to that planet where they flat out said, yeah, there's nothing there. We've got a colony there. It's, there's, mm. No one's dead. There aren't any aliens attacking people. It's fine. Oh, by the way, we've lost, <laughs> we've lost communication with that planet. So she's got an opportunity to face her fears, and the people they send along with her are the people that, in movies, but also, let's be honest here, in like politics and society, the people that we send when, oh, there's an other that frightens us, hmm. send in the Marines. <laughs> so they send in a troop yeah. of colonial Marines, there's colonialism at play here, obviously, hmm. and they are sent to kill all the aliens. And what happens? Most of them die immediately. And on one hand, that's just a fantastic engine of suspense. On one hand, that's just, we've built up all these guys that got this amazing technology and all this training. And they talk about like, oh, we've been on other bug hunts before. Like they fought other aliens. So mm. this is just going to be a cool action which, movie. Which and then, we never see in the rest of the series. It always weirded me out how you they never... Men- they, mention, they even mentioned that there's like aliens that they've had sex with. They're, they're think, in some of the banter they say, and remember, you had sex with that one alien, and you got like an alien disease, like venereal disease from that alien. I don't think there's, it's. I don't. I don't think they were specifically thinking about aliens. I think we're talking about people from a colony. On oh, a different planet, oh, I, I could have sworn they were talking about like you know that that alien species. I'll, I'll rewatch it at some point, but I'm pretty sure they were talking about like the colonists on this one planet. I've, I've only I've seen the film once, so I don't oh, remember okay. a lot well, of Well, you should see it details. again. It is really good. Mm-hmm. Um, But so the idea of rendering the sort of textbook machismo of the 80s Mm. and and also the textbook sort of political machismo of Americans moot Mm. and impotent and weak is very much in keeping, I think, with the spirit of the original Alien, even though it is from an entirely different perspective. It is active where the other one is cowering. And seeing someone who in the first film you know, spent a lot of the time just scared of the alien, finally rising up and meeting that alien on equal terms is a different element of the story. It's a different kind of story. And yeah, if if pressed, I'd say maybe alien is a little better, but when you look at what two amazing filmmakers can do with the exact same setup, well, the same monster anyway, well, that's the same, Mm -hmm. that's the setup basically. Mm -hmm. Like when you look at what they can do with the same framework, and how they will come at it from a different perspective without neutralizing the other one's work. Mm-hmm. I think it's some of the best like franchise storytelling we've ever mm-hmm. seen. Just these two. Well, I like a lot of the other sequels too, but these two in particular I, are, are almost an epiphany of genre cinema. I, I would agree with you if I were allowed to include the third. 
because mm-hmm. uh, when you go t- from cowering in a corner to putting on the robot suit and you know blowing giant monsters into space, mm-hmm. followed by everyone's going to die anyway. Yeah, that feels like a more complete arc to me. I actually agree, yeah. and I like Alien Three a lot. Alien but Three I is a miserable movie. I think Alien yeah. Three is really great. However, I don't think it's as exquisitely constructed as the first it's, two. It's so a mess. It is, it's a it's a mess, film, but yeah. it works. I do think it works. I do think that a lot of the things that were mad about that movie are intentional artistic choices that were designed to challenge us and put us in the place of Ripley alone mm-hmm. again for facing her own mortality this time in a way that goes beyond fighting a monster in a robot suit um, I think that movie is very good and I think it's a fitting final chapter but yeah I, I'm, I'm disappointed that it's just it's it's sloppy it's it, There's sloppy yeah, stuff it's, it. it's sloppy and yeah. It, and it comes from that that kind of mode of fan thinking where we begin mm. to we've seen the movie so many times we start thinking a little bit too hard about a lot of the details mm-hmm. and now we're a little bit preoccupied like we've come to accept well, the way the aliens reproduce as just sort of an there's kind no, of expected there's, no magic there's to yeah there's it. no yeah. magic or mystery to the point yeah. when we get to alien versus predator and like aliens grow and burst out of somebody in a few minutes and then they're fully grown 15 minutes yeah. later it's ridiculous the the thing that I, I think was really damning about alien 3 was the amount of expectation people had after aliens because you expect that the franchise is just going to grow and get bigger and bigger and bigger oh it's going to be like a world war 3 against aliens and yeah there's a part of me that thinks that would be cool well, and a lot of but the, like the, if you look up uh, some of the history of alien uh, aliens the, the original pitch for the sequel to Aliens, the third alien uh-huh. film, was going to be, yeah, like uh, 50 queen aliens yeah. and 50 power suits. And it's just the same thing, but times 50. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And listen, there's a part of me that thinks that would be really cool. Mm. I'm not going to lie. However, that's another one of those things, as I mentioned uh, earlier in the podcast, where mm. if you bring in all of your anticipation, you're not witnessing what's actually in front of you. Mm. And what's actually in front of you in Alien 3 is the same kind of sort of unfettered like attempt to tell a different story within this framework mm. rather than just expanding. Yeah. So Ridley Scott told his alien movie. James Cameron told his alien movie. David Venture tried to tell his alien movie and it got kind of messed up mm. with issues with the production company and that sucks. And he hasn't talked a lot about Alien mm. 3, but I know he's disowned it. He doesn't he, like yeah, it. He doesn't, you know, I don't even think he considers that his first film. But um, mm. regardless, it's an interesting film. It's a good film. And I think if you're not expecting, you know, the characters that you liked from the original film to keep going, if you're not expecting another huge action movie, if you're just expecting another interesting story centered around Ripley and this monster, Alien 3 works. But Mm. I'm not putting it as a tie for the best film ever, starting with A. I'm (laughs) putting Alien and Aliens as that tie. But Alien 3 is a very respectable conclusion to that arc. Okay. Well, uh, speaking of adventures, <laughs> <laughs> we'll talk about the greatest adventure of all time, La Ventura. Oh, I thought you were going to say Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. No, no. Which is made by runners up. I okay. almost put it on my top ten. I love that movie so much. <laughs> I, I, I do like it. And you already mentioned Adventures of Robin Hood. La Ventura is uh, Michelangelo Antonioni. Uh, and it's um, maybe one of the most boring movies you'll ever watch. By design. Wow, uh, what a thrill. Well, and, and that's that's sort of the <laughs> irony of the title. It's called The Adventure, but nothing happens. And it Antonioni... Oh, when he was, you know, back in the 1970s when he was really big and uh, uh, La Ventura came out in 1960, Mm -hmm. uh, started to uh, allow the word 
ennui to creep into the critical discourse. So Antonioni and ennui were really kind of uh, synonymous for a a brief while. And uh, yeah, it's about um, some (coughs) kind of bougie friends who go on a sailing excursion and they're all just so bored. They're not really talking to each other. None of them are really having fun. Some of them kind of flirt, but in a very automatic sort of way. And uh, one of them goes missing. They stop, they stop at an island. She's just gone. They can't really find her. And you would think that for a little while, you think this is about how her disappearance has revealed something kind of dark about the countryside. But what it was really revealed is that the, none of the other characters really care that much. Mm. They just don't care about uh, their friend. They don't care about humanity. They don't even really care about each other. And it, this film is like a... a two hour and 15 minute odyssey into that very natural, very human form of apathy. Uh, Naturally. I love it. I love it. It actually, I I didn't love it the first time I saw it. Um, I actually am still a little bit uh, on the fence about uh, a lot of Italian cinema of the Mm sixties. You know, I find some of it um, a little insufferable. D- don't start with Fellini. No. Start with Visconti. Uh, okay. Start with Lucino Visconti, then go to Antonioni, then maybe try Fellini, and you'll kind of get a, a better gamut and as to what Italian there are other filmmakers the beyond about, uh, them too. But well, yeah. I know, but you know, the, those yeah. are some of the bigger names that that you probably run across when you're studying cinema for you know seriously. But yeah, La Ventura is is just a really gray, slow moving, very bleak movie that doesn't seem like deliberately says there's nothing to say anymore. It's an existentialist film with a very bad conclusion. Mm. Uh, That's not to say it's not exhilarating to watch. I think there actually is something uh, very human and very relatable in that apathy, how there is always a temptation to just not care anymore and how that can be kind of freeing even though it's not going to make you happy and it's not going to change the world for the better. Mm. People are going to go missing they're just going to be dead, and who cares? <laughs> I run hot and cold on Antonioni. There are yeah. Antonioni films that I love and that blow their mind. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, what was that? Did he do Red Desert? Is that the one he did? Yeah, yeah, he couldn't get into Red Desert. I found Red, Red, it, Red Desert's kind of hard to get to. Yeah, right? like uh, that, that's that kind of thing where I'm like, I see what you're getting at. Mm-hmm. At no point do I feel invited into whatever you're doing. You're doing mm-hmm. what you're doing on your side of the room, and much like a sitcom, you have painted a line mm-hmm. right here, and I'm allowed to see what you're doing, but I'm not allowed to participate. And I feel like mm-hmm. some of Antonioni's films do that. And other Antonioni films are very inviting. Like, yeah. Blow Up is a great fucking thriller, on top of being a mm-hmm. really fantastic art house story about obsession and, mm-hmm. and style and the male gaze, and it's all of these things sort of wrapped up in one. Uh, so I actually haven't seen Love, I'm sure. Okay. But, um, um, have you seen The Passenger? Yes. yes. Okay, it was a long time ago. Okay, that's the one with Jack Nicholson. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that one might be... If there is an accessible Antonioni movie, that one might be it. I think Blow Up is yeah. pretty accessible. Well, yeah, Blow Up feels like an you know Italian thriller. It feels like mm-hmm. a precursor to the Giallo or a contemporary mm-hmm. thereof. Um, even though it doesn't have a serial killer, mm-hmm. it's got that vibe. That okay. person who falls into a mystery and mm-hmm. starts obsessing over it and becomes their life. Um, okay. Uh, well, mm-hmm. 
I have other films that I picked. Too. Well, tell me, tell me some of yours because I think I'm a little ahead of you. You're, no, no, not really. No, it looks right. like it feels like it, but but you're not. Just because the, the, you picked two in a row that I also picked. Okay. So, but we're actually we're actually all on the same page. Um, I, okay, I'm gonna switch it up entirely because all of your movies are fucking sad. Uh, <laughs> what can I say? I like sad movies. Uh, you know what? I I also like fun movies, mm-hmm. and I'm gonna I'm going to uh, pick mm-hmm. for this list. Maybe I think there's an argument to be made. The funniest movie of all time. Is it Airplane? Airplane! <laughs> airplane has an exclamation point in it, so you have to say it like that. Airplane! Airplane! Which is just a sort of a funny thing to yell, like in a vacuum. <laughs> airplane! What? Oh shit, Wh- where? I don't know. Airplane. Airplane. Airplane is a movie that is such a distinctive, groundbreaking kind of film comedy that we have already forgotten the genre it was spoofing. (laughs) It's a spoof movie, and we don't even talk about the genre it spoofed, or the franchise it spoofed. The airport movies were giant blockbuster movies. They won Academy Awards. There were all disaster things that happened at airports. Most people I know have never even seen them, and the other people I know haven't heard of them. They're it, gone. It's, it's really cu- and I'm curious to see because not all blockbusters last. Yeah, uh, some uh, people keep in the the pop consciousness for a long time. Well, think of something like Ghostbusters. I think people it's still easy- talk about that today. They're, yeah, they're even making another sequel to that. Damn, I thing. know. I think it's uh, easier in like the '80s onward because home video has kept certain movies more accessible than they would have otherwise. That's true. That's because fair. previously yeah. you'd have hit movies and blockbuster movies, and then if they didn't end up on television or a lot, if they didn't get re-released least they mm. just faded yeah nowadays it's if you like something it's easier to keep it around but still but if I, you pick any like year from um, like look at like the top 20 mm. highest grossing films from that year and go back like from like 1985 or earlier you're gonna see a couple of movies where you're like what the hell's that <laughs> like it was a huge hit yeah it was a big hit what what was the i've never seen that alan Alda movie that was the ninth highest grossing movie of 1980 <laughs> like i don't know what the fuck that is but apparently it was huge people were talking about it a yeah. lot and yeah when you're just for uh for inflation a lot of those films that were like number 10 in 1980 would have made like 175 million dollars mm-hmm. like people are just going to more movies at the time exactly you know the, the numbers are higher now but then the actual attendance is actually way down across the board mm. uh, that's why you know people like to say you know avengers endgame was the biggest movie of all time hang on a second there hoss <laughs> you know we, we got to talk talk about you know actual number of tickets sold the, the, the movie i was thinking of mm. uh was the actually, movie? yeah it actually was a spe- specific because mm. i was looking at um mm. couple of like years in cinema for a variety of projects i'm doing and uh the highest grossing films of 1981 i'm going to go through the list and mm. just see if there's something that like there's a couple of things that aren't that famous anymore yeah, but 80, see the one oh that gosh, see like, the one that's listen for the one that stands out all right okay the number one highest grossing film of 1981 raiders of the lost ark i've seen that movie Number two, highest grossing film of 1981, On Golden Pond. I've seen that movie. Number three, outgrossed by On Golden Pond, Hmm. a movie about old Peter Fonda and old Catherine Hepburn being old. Hmm. It's quite good. No, I'm not saying it's a bad movie. I'm just saying it's not like what you think of as a blockbuster Hmm. today. It outgrossed number three, Superman (laughs) 2. Number four. Superheroes are such big business that they are now. Number four, Hmm. Arthur. Okay. Funny comedy, not as popular as it used to be, but still funny. Comedies used to be bigger business. Uh, number five, Stripes. 
Okay. Still got a cultural cachet. Mm. People remember Stripes mostly because it's a Bill Murray comedy. Mm. Number six, The Cannonball Run. Not as famous as it used to be, but not a lot of films like it. Still pretty well remembered. Number seven, Chariots of Fire. Won the Academy Award for Best Picture, so even though a lot of people still haven't seen it nowadays, it's famous. Mm. Number eight, For Your Eyes Only, a James Bond movie. Number nine, The Four Seasons. Number ten, (laughs) Time Bandits. What? Time Bandits was that successful, right? Yeah, Time Bandits made money. Time Uh Bandits is the reason why Terry Gilliam was able to keep getting movies made for a while, because Time Bandits was a huge hit. Oh, okay. Yeah, but that number nine, The Four Seasons, an Alan Alda comedy that's... I I mean, uh, I know the hotel. Yeah, and and uh, and it's inspired by, like, Vivaldi compositions. Like, number nine, highest grossing movie of 1980, gone. You can still see it, but, like... Who the fuck talks about it? Written, directed, and starring Alan Alda and Carol Brunettes in it as well. Yeah, it's just... And you can pick any year, and you can at least look at the top 20. The Golden Globes there. Pick any movie from like the mid-80s on backwards, you're going to find at least one movie where you're just like, huh? What? What? These things fade. Hmm. They just do, over time. And and the further back you go, the more you're going to find. But like, yeah, it's nuts. Hmm. It's nuts. Um, I forgot how we got on this. <laughs> We're talking about, You're uh, talking about a- air, airplane and oh, the, airplane, yeah. the, the genre yeah. that so, like, air- inspired airplane is was a huge huge money-making machine back in the 70s yeah the whole 70s like the big dominant like there were two dominant forms of blockbuster entertainment in the 1970s that mm. were just everywhere there were disaster movies of which the airport movies were a big part mm. and um others why am i blanking Star Wars? Star Wars was later in the decade, though. Yeah, that's true. But um, then there was another thing that was big. James Bond movies? James Bond was always pretty big. I don't know why I had this huge (laughs) brain fart. I had another thing in my head. I was like, oh, Planet of the Apes. Planet of the Apes was a big franchise. James Bond had been grandfathered in. It was still successful. Mm -hmm. And of course, horror movies still did well. Blaxploitation movies Mm -hmm. were doing well. The Exorcist was the biggest thing in the world. It was a big hit, but it wasn't really... Jaws was a huge horror movie. But the franchise wasn't, though, because Mm -hmm. the sequel to Exorcist did crap. Yeah. And and with good cause, because it's one of the worst (laughs) movies I've ever seen, and that's saying something. Um, But yeah, these disaster movies were huge. And by the time Airplane got around to them, not only were they just absurd, because that's why you parody something, if it's inherently absurd... Uh, but Airplane was such a better version of it in a lot of ways mm. by highlighting the the inanity of the whole disaster movie concept and making fun of all of these characters who have their own storylines, but we're going to give them the dumbest storylines imaginable. And every single line of dialogue is either a joke or a setup for a joke. <laughs> and every single and if there's a boring scene in the background, there are more jokes. They're actually, uh, Zuckery from Zucker, like they really cracked the whip on on writing jokes. Like yeah. every every second, they needed a gag. Yeah, uh, there are. Uh, if it's not funny, we'll go it. We'll do it I in think, volume. I think there's two moments where there's just nothing really going on, where mm. they're just sort of things slow down a little bit. There maybe there's one bit of funny dialogue. Yeah, and they actually wrote those into the screenplay deliberately because that's when you go to the bathroom. <laughs> they thought about that. <laughs> Now, Zucker Abrams Zucker, they got, good golly, were they wonderful jokers. They wanted to send up cinema in a lot of big ways. They made a movie called The Kentucky Fried Movie, and mm-hmm. uh, they didn't direct it, but they, they were mm-hmm. one of the masterminds behind it. And three, it. Three of the masterminds behind it's it. It's more of a mixed bag, and, uh, but there's really funny bets in it. Uh, two of the titles they wanted, wanted to go with, and picture these on a, a theater marquee, because this is what they were thinking about. Is this about. for Airplane or Kentucky Fried Movie? This is for Kentucky Fried Movie. Okay, yeah. Uh, one of them was Under New Management. <laughs> 
It's going to be the title of the movie. So yeah. theaters would have to put that up on the right marquee under new management. The other one was free popcorn. <laughs> I wish they had gotten away with it. My that. favorite one of those, and they never got around to the punchline for the joke, was mm. when they made the movie for the monkeys. Mm. Um, Head? It, yes. So, mm. like, you may remember the Beatles had movies, Hard Days Night, whatever. The monkeys had their own movie. It was called Head. Mm. And it was co-written by Jack Nicholson. And it was this weird... Directed by Bob Rafelson, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's this weird, bizarre comedy. But the reason why they called it Head had nothing to do with the movie. It had to do with the sequel they assumed they'd get to make. Because they wanted to be able to say in the trailers from the people who gave you head. <laughs> that was the joke, but the movie wasn't a hit, so they never got to make they never got to the punchline. It's an amazing gag. Head is a fascinating like it's I, I'm not even sure if it's good, but it is fascinating. I've actually never seen all of it. I've, I've, I've never actually sat down. I've with seen it four or five times wow. and I cannot unlock that thing. That sounds amazing. Um mm. but uh, airplane, it is consistently funny and if a joke falls flat the fact that the joke is there and is as stupid as it is is inherently funny yeah and there's a couple of jokes that are duds now there's a couple of jokes that are offensive now as they were at the time but mostly it's just terrible plays on words and references to commercials no one remembers anymore but the timing is so perfect that you still laugh even though you don't get the joke that's the miracle of Airplane. You laugh when you don't get the joke because it's just mm. entering this world of silliness. Like, mm. if there was a universe... Like, we like to think of our universe as being run by various forces of nature, the laws of thermodynamics, mm. or if you want to get more philosophical about it, the ideas of yin and yang, or mm. good and evil. If there was a universe where the predominant, like, guiding principle and law of the universe was is it funny <laughs> that's airplane and so once you're there you just sort of get used to it and it's the, a delight the very fabric of the universe is candy corn uh yeah a, a airplane is unassailable i've i it was one i watched repeatedly as a young person mm. uh, it kind of informed my sense of humor perhaps unfortunately in many ways <laughs> i'm uh, actually surprised yeah. it's not on your list it's on my runner's up. I just thought it, I thought you liked it yeah. more than that, but you you're, no, you're on it. It. I, you I said love, yourself all of your movies are depressing. I, I love it. I love it deeply, but I just decided to go depressing this time. Okay, around. give me another depressing movie. Oh, okay, fine. <laughs> Let's see what I was, how about Apocalypse Now? <laughs> okay, it made my <laughs> runner's a, up. That's a good good depressing movie. Um, I had a really positive experience with Apocalypse Now the first time I saw it because oh, you told me the story. Yeah, right? I, I I saw Apocalypse Now when they released the Redux back yeah. in two thousand uh, early two thousands. I want to say late nineties. I think it was two thousand. And uh, yeah, and it's just, and it's just a longer cut. It has some like flashback material. Yeah, and you yeah. can you can actually. I hadn't seen the movie before, but I could tell which scenes had been sort of added. You could yeah. tell, oh, wait, the pacing is really different. And, oh, the photography changes. Yeah, that's a scene they put in. Uh, but I got, when Apocalypse Now was first run, they ran it as sort of a road show. That is, they traveled the print around from city to city rather than opening it nationwide all at once. They wanted to run it with no opening or closing credits. Mm -hmm. Just sort of get in, you get out. And it, just because that's the nature of this thing. You just sort of drift in, you drift away. Yeah. Uh, and I got to see Apocalypse Now Redux at that gigantic theater that is no longer there in Century City, California, right yeah. across from the Schubert, which is also no longer there. And, I think and I only ever saw one movie there, but it was really good. I saw that there, and I, I saw Eyes Wide Shut there, mm. and I saw the uh, 
week, a week early, the premiere of Mystery Men in that theater. So I had a lot of good times in that I theater. What I saw um, there. It was like some art house movie, but it was a really good one. And I <laughs> but I saw Apocalypse yeah. Now, and I went there, and that theater is just down the just down Santa Monica Boulevard from the VA hospital, mm. where a lot of uh, Vietnam veterans go on the regular. So they open up the, the Apocalypse Now Redux, and the theater is full of Vietnam veterans. Mm. And this is a 2,000-seat theater. It's pretty enormous. And uh, the first thing that comes up is a shampoo commercial, and it got booed. Because <laughs> the theater was under contract. You're supposed to, the lights are supposed to go down, and the film's supposed to start. But yeah, because the theater was under contract, they showed, oh, be sure to get fruit teas. Fuck you. <laughs> We're not here to see your fruit teas ad. But yeah, then we saw Apocalypse Now, which is a very psychedelic film. Uh, it's it's almost like reading a like a Faulkner novel in well, a lot of ways. It's, uh, it's 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 like reading a Conrad novel. Well, yeah, I guess it's like reading Conrad. Yeah, it's, it's based on Conrad's Hearts of Darkness. Yeah, uh, based on a Conrad novel, and it, it but it feels like we're living in the head of the protagonist, even though th- as things happen to him and the story, mm. you, you've you've seen it repeated uh, through across genres. It's about a soldier who is sent to go into dangerous territory. In this case, it's uh, deep in, into uh, behind enemy lines in, behind in the, Vietnam in, during the Vietnam War, yeah. and uh, to find a, a, a colonel who has gone completely rogue and is now uh, is said to have lost his mind, and they have to go in there and get him back. Well, they're, uh, they're, was, they're told to kill him, or to, to kill, like, not to get him back. To kill terminate him, uh, with extreme prejudice is mm. the exact word, the phrase and, that is used. Uh, this is a story that was repeated most recently in the film Ad Astra. Yeah, just imagine instead of uh, behind enemy lines during the Vietnam War, it's the planet of Neptune. Yeah, that sounds kind of cool, and somehow they made it a, a slightly and, boring movie. And, uh, and, 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 uh, and this time, the colonel mm. is your dad, and um, you've got some issues. And we have to Vague get issues. And we have to get him because he has something that's like ripping the entire solar system apart. It's it's I don't know really why good I, stuff in that movie. It's it's like it's like one third of something really interesting, and then the rest is just like schlock. The actual plot is not the good part of that movie. No. It's the way it's implemented and the way that there's a fucking dune buggy chase a, on the there's moon. There's a dune buggy chase and there's a space <laughs> so baboon. Cool. But it's supposed to be this really heavy but, drama. But those are like, the two best scenes yeah, in the whole movie. Those are the two best scenes <laughs> yeah. in the whole movie. Uh, anyway, but Apocalypse Now. Uh, yeah, I appreciate how just sort of crazy it is. It makes you yeah. feel like you're crazy. Yeah. And I think that's that was Coppola's point. He wanted to make you feel the insanity of this war, how living in that uh, this particular battle and all of the lies that were about it and how it kind of implemented and forced insanity and and pain and uh, and just well, death upon these people who weren't really sure what they were fighting for or why. Yeah, uh, because American soldiers weren't given the whole story. Well, they they wasn't and, uh, it, they weren't there to like for for like an ethos. Mm-hmm. They weren't there because it was the right thing to do. A lot of people were there because the government told them if they didn't go, they'd be thrown in jail. Mm. That's not going to lead to good morale. Yeah, and you know we just talked about the Spike Lee movie to Five Bloods, and there's a scene in this movie where the cast, who are now like aging Vietnam vets, are like dancing in front of like a big poster for Apocalypse Now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's Apocalypse Now is a very expressionistic war movie, and I think it's interesting that it didn't win Best Picture because I think for a lot of people. 
The, the joke was because the movie was so hard to make, this movie wasn't about Vietnam. It was Vietnam. <laughs> but I think for a lot of people, when they think about the Vietnam War, whether they were alive at the time or not, the Apocalypse Now is the movie they stick to the movie that comes to mind first because it puts you in a position of the sense of place is impeccable like it's incredibly photographed Mm. and the sound design is revolutionary for the time um and but on top of it all yeah it gets this sense of isolation and madness and moral stickiness to moral desolation um it's an incredible piece of filmmaking. I'm not sure what it is about it that kept it off of my mm-hmm. top ten list. It's a movie I have a lot of respect for. A movie I tell well, anyone to watch. It's but. also, uh, it's really, it's just not an accessible film. It, it's one of those films that became, re- like 2001 A Space Odyssey, something that became incredibly popular, was a big hit, Was has been constantly recognized by critics since its release. And yet you sit to watch it and there's nothing like, cool about it that is to say there's very little like an adolescent boy would really get off on Except, well I was, I was gonna say <laughs> there's the scene with Robert Duvall where, where they're playing right of the Valkyries with the, the, mm. the helicopters and you, I command you to go out and start surfing while there's napalm going off in the back I love the smell of napalm in the morning and a lot of people point to that oh look how cool this general is but the speech where he says uh, I love the smell of napalm in the morning about how it's like burning human flesh yeah. and, and they the zoom in like really close to his face and he gets really kind of wistful about this thought of watching human beings burn to death. Yeah. And he says, smells of victory. That's not a cool line. No, it's actually really fucked up. And yeah. it's one of those moments or scenes that I think it, it's such a distinctive. We- it's surreal mm. to think of the Vietnam War and people dying and people getting napalmed. And Americans surfing to that as though it was a beach blanket bingo scene. Yeah. There's supposed to be a horrifying contrast to that image. And Mm -hmm. I think it's so striking that it became this sort of ironic kind of cool. Mm -hmm. And in some respects, I look at Lapocalypse now the way I look at a film like Fight Club, where it is extremely daring, where it is extremely expressionistic, where it is using every single cinematic tool that was available at the time. Mm Mm-hmm. Often to great effect, but sometimes the fact that it is such an absolute explosion of artistic ambition and style and energy, that sometimes its message, though clearly stated, somehow still gets lost. Mm. And I think that might be one of the reasons why it, it fell off my list. I feel as though, as amazing a work of cinema as Apocalypse Now is, and it totally belongs on your list, I'm glad we were able to put it on here, even though I didn't make room for it, Um I feel like there are other movies that convey the message a little more clearly. Mm. And maybe hu- and maybe the fact that they are humane about it uh, makes the tragedy of Vietnam more palpable to me mm. than uh, Francis Ford Coppola's sort of LSD version yeah, of Vietnam. Well, well, Platoon starts with a P, so I can't choose that. <laughs> and The Five Blood starts with a... Uh, with a D. No. Oh, wait. Duh it's, it's is starts- an article. You're right. <laughs> so we have to wait for F to get to five points. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. Those are our rules. We got to stick by them. Socially safe fist bump there. Boom. <laughs> the demolition man high five where you, you pause him in air and then you rub, wipe. Rub, you do the rubbing motion. Yeah, it's nice. All right. Uh, okay. I got three more. You got two. Uh, so I'll just, I'll guess I'll do two. Uh, we'll do. Yeah, whatever. I'll do one. I, the, I, I did my number three. What's your number three? Okay, well, I, I'm actually at my number four. 
four because okay, we skipped me, ahead to my number one, but whatever. Four and your number three. Then. All right, I guess. Uh, all right. Uh, well, uh, w- while we're talking about the late '70s and sort of films that are dealing with the political and uh, social sort of landscape of that era, films that are exceptionally timely, films that are uh, starring some of the uh, greatest actors of the era. Let's talk about all the president's men. Oh, okay. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, I, I like All the President's Men. All the President's Men is a fantastic motion picture. Um, it is about uh, Woodward and Bernstein, the reporters who broke up with the Watergate scandal, which played a pivotal role in ending the Nixon presidency. Um, at the well, time, let's be fair. Nixon played the pivotal role in ending the Nixon presidency. Well, if it was up to Nixon, he wouldn't have left. Now, is it? <laughs> no, he would have gotten away with it. Yeah, exactly. So I think. Although he wasn't a crook, he said so. <laughs> well, who? Listen, he's the president. How could he be wrong? <laughs> who are we to doubt Nixon? <laughs> um, you know, nowadays it seems like such. It's a, it's a, the it fall seems of the like Nixon, a foregone conclusion well, now. The fall yeah. of the Nixon administration and the is basically the fall of grace, not of America, because America was always fucked up and corrupt and mm. and horrible and full of human rights abuses. But the image of America as being this like perfect new country became impossible to believe. Yeah. After Nixon was forced to resign amidst horrible corruption and scandal. Um, and that wound was still exceptionally fresh when all the president's men came out. It came out in 1976. Hmm. In the mid, like right when it was happening. Yeah. Like it's right. It's right. It it wasn't that long after Nixon resigned. Like it's actually like, it's almost like if this movie came out like today, people would be saying like, Ooh, too soon. Mm. Like, we don't have historical context. Like, how, how do we know what this is going to mean later? Is this not perhaps in, uh, something you should wait and talk about 10 years from now when we get to see the big picture? And one of the most genius things that Alan J. Pakula did and what screenwriter William Goldman did, and of course it's based on the book All the President's Men by Woodward and Bernstein, um, they don't get into that. This is about the nuts and bolts of getting the story. This is probably the greatest movie ever made about reporting in that it's Mm. just about people. Well, up until Spotlight and The Post and a couple others more recently. I would still say say both of those movies owe a debt in such a debt to all the president's men that I still Mm. would put this slightly above them. But those are great movies. Yeah. I love those movies. But I think Spotlight and and The Post are easily like the descendants of all the Mm. president's men. And of course, there have been other movies about reporting before, but... Mm. I think All the President's Men was the sort of you are their workplace realism. And the thing is, is that working as a reporter, a lot of the biggest scenes in this movie are just Robert Redford on a telephone for five minutes. Yeah. Just hearing something, calling someone else, can't reach that person, May, well, calling you, someone else. And we, because we know how that all turned out, we yeah. get to see the connections being made yeah. and going like, ooh. Yeah. Oh, they found the tapes. Yeah. Oh, they're going to bring them down. Oh, that, oh deep throat. The yeah, fact that like... this person can't answer this question is really significant and he's going to figure that out. But like, yeah, Bakula is so confident mm. in that, that we know, we know what's going to happen. We know what's called. Mm. We know what it's about that. He doesn't need to rush it and he can just show all of the nuts and bolts journalism in real time. And that can be riveting. <laughs> 
because not only do we know what's happening, so there's this wonderful sense of suspense, we get to see the slow realization in the faces of these reporters mm. as they begin to see that what they are discovering really is the biggest news story of the 70s. Mm. And one of the biggest news stories of the century. That right there is just this elegant and simple form of suspense that is just almost impossible to beat. Mm. There's so many incredible like camera tricks in this movie that don't feel like tricks. To split diopters where, um, if you're not familiar with that term, it's a kind of a, a lens where there's a different focal length in each half of the, the mm. lens. So I've, people in the foreground and in the background are both in focus. Yeah, but you'll often notice there's like a little blurry area mm. in the middle where mm. that meets. Um, but yeah, I've, I've never thought that looks good. You can hide I, it. I can't think can of a good, a good shot in a movie where that's like done well. All the President's Men. I know. Still, it's I still think it's distracting. I love it. I think yeah. when it, you sometimes it's easier to hide than others, but you mm -hmm. know, it's it's the it's a kind of trick that like calls attention to itself. But I think this movie is so otherwise just uncomplicated in its mm -hmm. in its imagery. It's complicated, but it doesn't call attention to its complicatedness. That that you can get away with that. But anyway, um, I, I lost my train of thought, but it, it, it's really good. All the presidents met. It is really good. Yes. I agree. I love all the presidents. <laughs> yeah, I totally had a brain yeah. fart there. That's no, um, all right. It's, it's just this kind of movie that, like, I, I think that there are certain filmmakers and certain storytellers who grow to understand a job so well that they understand how to make that job the most interesting thing yeah. ever. And it can be any job. Uh, look at something like Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which is about a bunch of guys trying to sell real estate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> absolutely riveting mm. it, you know people think there are only like five interesting jobs there's like president lawyer doctor, doctor yeah. cop well, that's and criminal it. and like those are the five <laughs> nothing else is interesting and and like if we try and, to and do wisecracking pathologist yeah and like and if we try to do like another job it's got we got to come up with like some kind of like in like we can't just do you know, a story about a teacher. It's got to be like Dangerous Minds where she was a Marine yeah. who like used her Marine ideas to like, what, I don't care. You can make any job interesting if you understand the details and you can get the characters to convey what is significant. And because the story that they're running down, the way they would run down any other story hmm. is a story that changed the world. It just adds this element of gravitas and it's just absolutely brilliant in its construction. It's a, it's a, a damn near perfect movie. Hmm. I, I have nothing to criticize yeah. that. I and agree. It, and again, the <laughs> fact that it was made so soon after the actual event and doesn't feel like, oh, if they, we, they knew then what we knew now, mm -hmm. they would do it differently. Like, you look at something like uh, The Fifth Estate. Oh, uh, must I? Yeah. Yes. It's a movie that was all about how um, Julian Assange is going to change the way we do reporting forever. And boy, is that movie aged really bad. Mm -hmm. Really? That one was yeah. way too soon. Because they tried to make a statement, and they didn't have a statement to make. If they just said, he did this thing, you might have gotten away with it. But they didn't. Hmm. All right, uh, next one. Next one. Since, um, since I felt... Uh, how how about a film that uh, is so damn good that it calls into uh, question not just the very function of cinema, but the way human memory actually functions? 
mm. something that is uh, exhilarating and thoughtful, uh, funny and tragic all at once. Uh, pass. Uh, Air Bud. No, um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not, wouldn't it be funny if it were Air Bud? I thought for a second about putting Air Bud, but I decided it was. We, we, it was, want, we it want to was, be a little serious. It's a, yeah, we want to be serious. I'm talking about Hirokazu like Koreeda's Afterlife, which I okay. talk about ad nauseum on this show because not enough of you have seen it, damn it, because I'm going to keep talking about it until everybody's seen it. You uh, and I haven't seen it. Afterlife is, uh, it begins with a group of people. They kind of move into this uh, almost like a, a, a campground mess hall where it's like, you know, some nice benches and it's a nice shady area and they're out in the wilderness. They'll kind of sit and they kind of converse and we understand that these people don't really know each other. They're just getting to know each other for the first time. And uh, then the counselors come in and they're, uh, they're, they have, they're filmmakers. These counselors come in and they say, hey, everybody. So welcome to the afterlife. You're all dead. This is the afterlife. This is what it looks like. <laughs> and everybody says, yes, yes, we, uh, we're all dead. Uh, everybody's totally at peace with it. Nobody's yeah. freaking out. And they said, here's how the afterlife works. You have a couple days to think of your most cherished memory. And when you figure out what it is, let us know. And, that, and this is going to be the memory you get to essentially ascend with. Mm. This is the one memory you get to have. Everything else about you is going to be gone, but you'll have this one memory. And what we do is you tell us all about that memory, and we, as filmmakers, have to figure out how to recreate that on film. <laughs> and when we've done it, using just the film technology at the time, it's not like we're like animating it or do CGI. Uh-huh. Uh, like there's a scene where uh, one of uh, one of the, the dead people's memories was, I remember uh, I was a pilot, and I was flying a small plane by myself, and I remember just sort of looking out the window and seeing the clouds float past. I'm like, well, we don't have a plane. How are we going to film that? <laughs> like, we can, I guess we can, we can construct like a part of a cockpit. And look, I found this way where we can like jerry rig like cotton and sort of do some por- forced perspective to make the cloud look like it's flying. Like, they actually have like real concerns of like budget filmmaking. <laughs> and amazing. then, and then when they have completed the film, the person in question who gave them the memory sits in the theater. They watch the dailies, and when the lights come up, they have vanished. Mm. And it's uh, amazing. First of all, what a fucking great premise for That's a movie. That's an amazing yeah. pitch. That's an amazing <laughs> pitch. And secondly, yeah, it talks, it it's brings into, uh, first of all, it, it lets the audience play along. Well, if you're in that scenario, what would you pick? What is your most cherished memory? Yeah. And it's kind of fun to think about. It's yeah, not it like, sounds like oh, a drinking God. game. Yeah, it's not, like, not, yeah. not like I'm dead. It's like, what is my most cherished memory? And, yeah. and you can kind of keep it to yourself or say, you know, what would be more interesting? They talk about, uh, there are actually some several dead teenage girls in the, in the group. And they're like, uh, well, my happiest memory was when I went to Disneyland. It's like, so it's okay. We do this one all the time. Like, yeah, uh, te- girls your age often pick Disneyland. It's like, well, don't, Shouldn't I be choosing something a little more meaningful? Well, I mean, you could, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It reminds me a little bit of Defending Your Life. Yeah, a little bit. Where uh, Albert Brooks constructed an afterlife. And one of the first things they say is, um, uh, we have eliminated the need for regret and remorse and mourning and missing your family. It's a distraction. Mm. They'll be fine. They'll die eventually and come here. And it's not a big, we don't want you worried about that. (laughs) So it's one of these things he created so that the characters don't seem like bad people because they miss their family (laughs) or whatever. Like they're allowed to just focus on what they're doing. Mm. Um, 
But yeah, yeah uh, but yeah, th- this is uh, of course, of course. Uh, not only are you playing along, but you're bringing into question what does what function does cinema serve? Mm. Cinema uh, is a great way to link up with another human mind. It's a way to empathize with another person. But it's a way of really kind of putting your own memories in order in a way. Mm. It's a way of remixing the human experience, isn't it? Yeah. The, the people who are making these movies are only drawing from their own experience. They're only drawing from what they know. Yeah. Because that's all an artist can do. They're not capable of writing about something they haven't experienced. Or perhaps they are and they do it badly. Well, that's the, but that's yeah. the thing that intrigues me. And I really need to see this movie for God's sake. You keep talking about yeah. it. But the idea is that we're trying to capture your favorite memory. And it mm. doesn't necessarily mean it's anything we've done. Well, and, and when you think of sort of the explicit and intense memories that you form from the cinema from watching movies yeah like what what happens when you come into this thing and your most intense memory is a movie Mm -hmm. that's kind of what they're doing what you remember in your head is kind of like a little movie isn't it Mm -hmm. so why don't we just make it can we just give you a clip from the godfather or do we have to recreate the godfather like what do we do well in in the world of of afterlife they probably have to recreate the godfather it's like oh (laughs) shit we don't have the rights to the godfather i know i know we're all dead but jesus christ Warner Brothers really so, yeah. their, their lawyers are so amazing all, all these layers of artifice and, and soul searching yeah. I, I, I when people, when I bring it up I like to call it one of the best films of the 90s yeah. uh, it's just that it, it's just such a great film and it's woefully underseen mm. well uh, what, are, what how many do you have left I, I have uh, my number one spot is left but it's a tie so okay. we'll get to those alright well I have two left and they're my three and my number two my number one again was Alien and Aliens mm-hmm. uh, so I'll just do my three and two and we'll end with your one alright All right. Uh, so and again the order doesn't really matter except for the number one uh, so let's talk about a movie that this is the first movie I remember seeing in a theater really it is still one of my favorite movies it was very formative to me I would listen to the soundtrack incessantly I'd watch it over and over again on television Hmm. and VHS and it this isn't just nostalgia talking I generally consider this to be one of the best movies ever made Uh, it is Milos Forman's Amadeus I didn't put this on my list because I knew you would. Yay! <laughs> I am predictable. But I love Amadeus. Mm. I love Amadeus uh, to pieces. It's not great history, but it's amazing storytelling. Mm. Uh, it's a story of Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Uh, Mustard? I don't know how I did that. <laughs> Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart. Uh, the reason why the focus on the word Amadeus is Amadeus means son of God. Mm. And this is a movie that is very much about uh, faith. It's also a movie that is very much about the opposite of faith. Mm. The hatred of God and God's creation and of nature, but also about the beauty of these things. Resentment. And, and so there's a, there was a, one of Mozart's contemporaries was a composer named Salieri, played in the movie by F. Murray Abraham. Mozart is played by Tom Hulse. Salieri, who in real life apparently had no problem with Mozart whatsoever. They're apparently they were friends. But in the movie and in the play that it's based on, uh, Salieri was a mediocre composer. He was good for the time, but there's a reason why you can't hum any of his music. Mm. Which they illustrate in one of the first scenes in the movie. Yeah, yeah. he plays his... He's, he's like an old man. He's living in, a, in an insane asylum, and a man comes in to hear his confession, and he's playing on a piano. It's like, do you recognize that? He's, do you recognize this? Do you recognize this? He doesn't recognize anything. Mm. And then he plays just a little Mozart. Bum, 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 bum. The guy's, oh, I know that one. And he goes, yeah, that one was fucking Mozart. Mm. Goddamn motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> because... Salieri was doomed to historical mediocrity. Mm -hmm. Whether he deserved it or not, he is not well-remembered. And through the lens of someone who is a historical anecdote, 
we are viewing the life of Mozart, who became a legend and is still considered to this day one of the greatest uh, musicians who ever lived. And yet, in Mozart's life, he was he experienced great highs, but he was also died in destitution and of, of very young age. Too. Very, very young age. He, he lived a life of, uh, you know, live fast, die young, leave a plague ridden corpse. Um, I, I love uh, Tom Lehrer, the, the comedy musician uh, yeah. and, and mathematics professor, has a funny line about Mozart. He's like, uh, you're reading about Mozart and how much he'd accomplished and. Uh, he was so ahead of his time that by the time Mozart was my age, he had been dead for five years. Yeah, yeah. it's a good line. Hmm. Um, but the idea is that Salieri was just talented enough hmm. and just blessed by God enough with enough talent and education and, and taste that he could recognize the greatness of Mozart. He could recognize the greatness of his music when no one else could. And rather than using his position to elevate him, he'd used it to keep him down because fuck that guy <laughs> how dare he be more talented than me it's what everyone thinks a film critic is mm. it's someone who can't do it and is just mad and wants to keep your favorite filmmaker down man and oh, we're, we're all failed filmmakers oh yeah that's, that, that's what we oh, all no one actually sure. wants to do the job that they've dedicated their life to no which doesn't really. pay well <laughs> like has almost no perks to speak but of the like, reason we become film critics is to become popular <laughs> and and well-liked <laughs> and welcomed with open arms in any film conversation. I ironically, one of the reasons I think I became a film critic mm. was to not be Salieri, mm. was to be someone who could see, hopefully, mm -hmm. quality in art and artistry and help people see it too, which is something that Salieri had a knack for in this story. Probably in real life, it's irrelevant. It's not mm -hmm. what he did, but... Uh, but in this story, he had a knack for it. And rather than introduce it to other people and get people to appreciate an artist in their time, we have to do it in retrospect after it's too late and they can't help him anymore. And that's something that as a film critic, I want to do. I want to appreciate people while they're alive. Mm -hmm. I want to acknowledge that films are good now rather than wait three years when all of a sudden it's okay to say Speed Racer was good or, <laughs> or whatever. Any number uh, of films that people hated when they came out or didn't understand when they came out. And then three years later, all of a sudden they were good. I want to be the kind of person who can tell you that now mm -hmm. so that you don't miss it now. And it can actually help now. Although... The opposite of that is also true, and, yeah. that, and that one hurts more. Yeah, because you're just more arrogant. It's yeah. Like, well, look at this big hit; everybody loves it. Yeah, you look; it has all these flaws. It actually kind of sucks. You're just shut up and let people enjoy things. Well, and again, yeah, and then four years pass, and people say, "Oh yeah, it wasn't very good." And all you can say is, "I told you so." Well, I tried our, to guide so you to other things. Now you're a dick twice. I know. I know. <laughs> it's a, it's a it's a bitter circle, but mm. it's 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 part of the the mm. process and. The other thing is that Milos Forman films the fuck out of this movie. Like, mm -hmm. its movie is gorgeous, and he he understands that in order to captivate audiences with classical music, which by the 80s, yeah, people still listen to classical music. There will always be a place for classical music, mm -hmm. but, you know, if you're rocking out to the Sex Pistols until 2 in the morning, Mozart doesn't really seem very punk rock, now does he? <laughs> he was punk rock yeah. for the era he was extremely punk rock and this is something that the movie does brilliantly was it might not be an accurate film historically but it tells you what it would have felt like at the time mm -hmm. it gives you an indication 
of how revolutionary someone like Mozart was in his day. And that's something that I think we can only experience through something like cinema, because just reading Mozart's Wikipedia page, you'd find out he was good at what he did. Well, a lot, a lot of study could warrant that as well. That, that's but, true, yeah. but you, if you don't have time to become an expert in classical music, you can watch Amadeus, and all of a sudden you can be overwhelmed by the awesome majesty of artistry and opera and incredible period detail and costuming and mm-hmm. the uh, bizarre social mores of the time. There's, it, It's an incredibly immersive film. I saw this movie when I was two years old, and... I, after we left the theater, I said, Mom, can we watch it again? And we did, right then. Nice. It's that <laughs> enrapturing. I felt completely transported. I still remember the first time, the first like opera bit, and I actually can't remember off the top of my head what the name of the opera is, but it's the one where um, it's, it's all grand and wonderful, and it's the first one he did in Vienna, and then um, afterwards you found out he was sleeping with a soprano. Um that was like the coolest thing I had ever seen in my life. And to this day, it's still one of the most like, holy shit, how amazing mm-hmm. moments I've ever had in a the theater. And I love it to pieces and I hope everyone sees it. Right. Uh, and then my number well, two, I feel like such a dick for including army of darkness. Oh, I, my I, list. I, I put attack the block in mm-hmm. audition. I put genre films. I came this close to putting the adventures of Buckaroo Banzai <laughs> this close, this close. In fact, I almost put like a whole line for just the adventures of, it would have been, <laughs> been Robin Hood, Hood Buckaroo Banzai and Priscilla queen of the desert. Nice. Came this close, but I decided that was too much of a cheat. Uh, and then my number two, and I'm curious if this is one of your ties, hmm. because I'm surprised you haven't mentioned it yet, is Billy Wilder's The Apartment. Oh, you know what? I, I forgot about The Apartment. Oh, glad I remembered it's, it yeah, then. Not on, not on either of my lists. I'm glad I remembered it. Okay. Then. It should have been. Yeah. <laughs> the Bye, Army of Darkness. <laughs> okay. Fuck Army of Darkness. Yeah. Let's get The Apartment on there. The Apartment is an amazing motion picture, and it's the kind of movie that grows on me every single time I see it. I think the first time I saw it, I liked it, I respected it, but every single time I see it since, I appreciate all of the wonderful character detail and storytelling. Um, Mm. Well, genius, I think. Billy Wilder made a lot of brilliant movies in his career, and um, if we do the best movies that start with the letter S, Sunset Boulevard will probably be on it. <laughs> in fact, I also came this close to putting Ace in the Hole on here. Uh, that that was on my runners. There you I, go. I forget the apartment, but remember Ace in the Hole. Right. But uh, yeah, the apartment, we covered it on an episode of The Two Shot mm-hmm. uh, a, a while ago. And eventually when we do um, our podcast, Only the Best, and our Patreon, we review every film that won or was nominated for Best Picture. We'll get to the apartment then, too. Mm. But uh, the apartment stars Jack Lemmon. As an office drone, just a guy who works at a giant cavernous office where everyone is just there at their damn ticker tape machines and couldn't even tell you what they're doing for a living. But he's in an odd spot because Mm. he is a single man in a company full of married men who like to have affairs all the time. And they can't keep charging hotel rooms to their credit cards because their wives are finding out. Mm. So through a series of weird machinations, that's not really important. He has entered into a scheme where for no, there's no benefit to him. They're not paying him for it. He's just a doormat who is letting all of these men who are cheating on their wives use his apartment as their own fuck pad. For no money either. It's yeah. just like as a favor. Yeah, he's ostensibly you get the impression he's doing it thinking eventually because every once in a while they'll dangle a promotion in front of him, but he never actually gets it. Mm. So he's just doing this because he's a doormat. Mm. And it's miserable. And he's hanging outside in the cold. He has nowhere else to go. And it's like 2 a.m. by the time he gets home. And he's 
so miserable that he's like making spaghetti and he doesn't have a colander. So he's using a tennis racket, which is an amazing image. And eventually he falls in love with an elevator operator at his building, played by the wonderful Shirley MacLaine. Problem is his boss, Fred McMurray, McMurray, playing really against type at the time. Fred McMurray wants to use his apartment as his fuck pad so that he can have sex with Shirley MacLaine, Mm. the woman Jack Lemmon is in love with. And then on top of it all, when Shirley MacLaine realizes that this guy is never going to leave his wife for her, she tries to kill herself. In the apartment. In the apartment, not realizing it's Jack Lemmon's apartment. Mm. And now he is completely enmeshed in the situation. He's ashamed of and humiliated by and... What a weird situation to be in. It's 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 it's, it's such a concept that like you notice there aren't a lot of rip-offs of this movie. It's considered one of the best movies ever made and with good cuts. It's one of the best movies ever made. Mm. But for whatever reason this plot, no one does this plot well, the way I they do the like, Asphalt Jungle or any yeah. of the other like really famous movies. I think it's because and it's because we don't have Jack Lemmon anymore and mm. nobody was better than Jack Lemmon at playing uh, sort of a, a put-upon, rather pathetic figure mm-hmm. and still be 100% relatable and sympathetic. Well, he was the hero, even mm. though he was completely unheroic. Yeah. And that's a really hard to pull off. Mm. It's really hard to pull off. You see a lot of people try, and they end mm. up just coming across like assholes mm. or like they're a black hole of charisma. Like, no, Jack Lemmon's clearly wonderful. Mm. He's just letting people walk all over him because he's nice. And he forms the most wonderful relationship with Shirley MacLaine. They're just absolutely, the chemistry is, find better chemistry in a movie. Hmm. Like, find it. Like, <laughs> I'm not saying there isn't other good chemistry. There might even be better chemistry, hmm. but it's hard to find. Yeah. They're just perfect together. And Billy Wilder is finding really wonderful ways to tell this story that, you know, this could have just been a simple rom-com, unremarkable looking movie. And, you know, he makes that office look like, you know, the middle of a pyramid, like this <laughs> incredible, bizarre place where everyone is just there to be, you know, just sort of offered up to the gods of capitalism so that two people can rise and make a lot of money. And <sighs> sparkling dialogue, understands melancholy without getting morose about it. Mm. Um, I mean, yeah, it's a movie about attempted uh, someone who attempts to kill themselves. And it's, it's not, not the mega, thing, and, yeah. and it's not mega depressing, but it also doesn't deny the severity of that, mm. and that's really hard to do. That's exceptionally hard to do. Billy Wilder is one of the deftest filmmakers we've ever had. He could balance anything, work in any genre too. Work in any genre, balance any two moods, any two completely disparate story elements. The Apartment is, I mean, it's hard to even say if it's even his best film, but it is his best film that starts with the letter A. (laughs) And I'm including Ace in the Hole, which is also in my runners-up. All right, Uh, Whitney, that's my whole list. What's your number one? And I hear you tell me it's a tie. It's a tie because there are two films from the same filmmaker uh, that both start with the letter A. Okay. One of of them is one of the best films of the 60s. Uh Another one is one of the best films of the 80s. And uh, is it Akira Kurosawa's Ran and Akira Kurosawa's like dreams and Akira Kurosawa's? Uh, no, because uh, <laughs> that's a cheat. 
First of all, I, I'm not sure. I'm trying to think of uh, an A title in Kurosawa's. Well, Akira Kurosawa's Dreams. That's actually the title. Oh, the, you're right. Akira. No, it's not Akira Kurosawa's. Uh, it's Robert Bresson, ah, uh, who did Oha Sard Balthazar in the 1960s uh-huh. and did L'Argent in the 1980s. Wow. Um, you are an art house film critic. So what? I love you. <laughs> that's, that's not a bad thing. It's just who you are, what man. What the fuck is it. wrong with having refined taste? I I'll never take said. Um, I never said anything yeah. negative. I just think right. you're just the. You are. Uh, you're just a delight. Thank you. <laughs> I could have said aliens, and I didn't. I, I, said, I said aliens. I said Ohasard Balthazar. I'm that film I put airplane on my list, and you put doing. two Brisson films, <laughs> <laughs> making me look like a piece of crap. There's a tie for number one. Oh uh, Ohasard Balthazar is a depressing film about a donkey that dies. <laughs> that's the movie. <laughs> L'Argent is about how money sucks. And you touch it and you die. And that's the movie. These movies are freaking awesome. Uh, I, I love these movies. Now, Robert Bresson, uh austere is perhaps not enough to describe the filmmaking style of, uh, of Bresson. I think he, that's fair. Robert Bresson... Uh, Famously directed his actors in such a way where they were meant to display absolutely no emotion. Uh, Emoting and melodrama, he felt, were kind of blockages in, like, the direct line of aesthetic expression from the heart of the filmmaker directly into the audience. He didn't want anything getting in the way of that. He was very much a purist when you look at the way he, he operated. And, uh... As such, we get much more powerful philosophical treatises where the audience is invited to think about exactly what the film is about at any given moment rather than anything about the plot or the characters necessarily. Uh, Ohazar Balthazar, again, it's a depressing movie about a donkey that dies. Uh, it's a, a Balthazar is a donkey, and this donkey is a beast of burden. And sort of like in The Three Lives of Tomasino, we get to see the donkey sort of drift from owner to owner and uh, see the plight of these various human beings, not through the eyes of the donkey, but just sort of how the donkey was there to observe it. And in observing it brings a sense of almost divine moral judgment mm. into the equation. Yeah. Uh, Ohazar Balthazar has been called a Christ allegory. Uh, it is very obviously a Christ allegory. And the donkey don- is Jesus. The donkey is Jesus. And, you know, the ass That is, should have been the name of the movie. The donkey is Jesus. Maybe a little too on the nose, but... Uh, it's, hey, you get, you get what's on the tin. You could call it Palm Sunday. Maybe that's a little... <laughs> getting a little further away from being on the mo- on the nose. But yeah, Ohazar Balthazar uh, is uh, bleak. It's... I don't want to call it dry because there's a lot really going on in its mind, even if there's not a lot going on in the plot. And watching this donkey suffer is a, a visceral experience unlike any other. Okay. Because you kind of get this cosmic sense of the divine unfairness. Uh, when it comes to the things that must be martyred in order for ordinary people just to have the blandest possible lives. Mm. Uh, All of the pain in the world goes onto this donkey's back. Mm. And it's tragic. Uh, If anyone is Mm. curious, Mm. by the way, whether Ohazard Baldazar sort of... 
skirts the rules. <laughs> skirts a the bit. rules. O is actually uh, AU is a preposition, mm-hmm. so it's fine. And Ohazard Balthazar translates kind of, kind of loosely to uh, Balthazar randomly. Balthazar at random. Yeah, it's yeah. at. At mm. is not an article. At is a preposition. Yeah. At is fine. In, fact, in the bedroom would be under mm. I, not mm. bedroom. In fact, I do have one at film on my runners up. Uh, okay. So yeah, Ohazard Balthazar. The other one, L'Argent, uh, is about money. And it's about how uh, capitalism is such a wicked thing. <laughs> Good golly, is this a political movie? Uh, and yeah, it, took, it was made in the, uh, the early 80s. And it's about how uh, a, a shop comes upon a, f- a f- counterfeit bill. And they're so eager not to do anything about it that all they have to do is kind of pass it on. Yeah. And it, this this counterfeit bill ends up like passing through various hands, and we get to see that the main character of the piece has to essentially, because of this counterfeit bill in a roundabout way, turn to a life of crime, and how just being in vici- the physical vicinity of cash robs your soul of any kind of decency. Yeah, it's not just about how capitalism or greed can slowly work their way into your heart and corrupt everything like Oliver Stone would say. Mm-hmm. This is much more fundamental than that. No, that when, when people scrimming... say money is the root of yeah. all evil, this is what they mean. It yeah. immediately changes your priorities. Exactly. To the point where you're not even valuing something of value anymore. You're valuing the concept of value. Yeah, this piece of paper, this dollar bill, mm. or these ones and zeros that are on your credit card, mm. that's not an actual thing. <laughs> it's just a little this, string of numbers. This thing, uh... it represents value, mm. but it actually has none. Mm. Our entire economy is based on a vague idea. Ascribing some sort of abstract value to something that doesn't have value. It used to be based on the gold standard, where theoretically you could take all of your money, bring it to whatever, and they and would, would give you this enough, much gold. Would buy this much gold. They won't actually give you gold for it. Mm. They won't. M- money... Uh, if you if you think of money as a trade certificate, which is what it is, yeah, then it starts to lose a little bit of its mystique. You start realizing you're just playing Monopoly every single day. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I uh, uh, there's a they do speak songs. I don't want to call them like a musical band, but they're called the Android Sisters. Oh yeah, and the Android Sisters have a really great scratch where they talk about how here's a piece of paper, here's a piece of money. What's the difference? It's just two pieces of paper. The difference is this one was blessed by the treasury wizards. Like yeah, that, that's, yeah. that's the only way they can put it. It's yeah. like, it makes no sense. They're both paper. Yeah. It, no, it's, this it's, one was blessed by the treasury wizards. It's completely arbitrary and weird. And yet people will kill each other for it. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, it's and, ridiculous. And people's lives are completely ruined just yeah. by having it in near them. Yeah. Uh, and Brasson was very keen on exploding that. He makes this very kind of bleak, uh, yeah, heady drama about just being in the vicinity of money. Both of these films are excellent. Uh, mm. Both of these films are challenging. Both of these films are very, very difficult. And both of these films are incredibly exhilarating and emotionally destructive in a way that most films aren't. Robert Brasson is, without hyperbole, one of the best filmmakers to have ever lived. Yeah. And uh, you would do yourself a favor to watch a couple of Robert Brasson's I've, I've never seen a bad Brasson film. No. I've also never seen those two Brasson films. <laughs> <laughs> We've seen Diary of a Country Priest, right? Uh, no, but I've seen, I've seen, I've <laughs> seen A Man seen Escaped. These? I've seen Pickpocket. Okay. I've okay. seen others. 
Um, I'm actually not a big fan of Pickpocket. I don't want to. It's been a while since I've seen it, though. I so, love it. Yeah. I think it's a great movie. But yeah, yeah. fair enough. Um, mm. It's another one that's about the nuts and bolts of things, and mm. I always respect when that can be exciting. Yeah. Um, okay, so those are our top ten lists of the films that are the best movies ever made that begin with the letter A. Mm. If you like this, in we're not going to do this every month, but every like other month, we'll like we may throw up movies that begin with B and then C or whatever. Mm. Um, and if you vote for it, we'll do it again. And if not, we'll stop doing that after a while. We'll just see if you liked this episode or not. But before we move on, before we say our goodbyes, I want to go through our runners-up. Whitney mm. just did his number one, so I'll, I guess I'll do my runners-up first. Uh, real fast. I'm going to do this as quickly as I can. Uh, but I do want to give you a little flavor of each film. Uh, Billy Wilder's Ace in the Hole uh, is a story about corruption uh, within uh, the, the news business. Uh, it is one of the bitterest movies ever made on that subject, and it is absolutely phenomenal, and it's great. Mm. Uh, the Addiction, Abel Ferrara's uh, incredible vampire movie about um, basically how all the bullshit that you convince yourself is interesting in college would be different if you had life and death in your hands and you were a vampire. Um, <laughs> the Adventures of Buckaroo Bonsai Across the Eighth Dimension is one of the most exquisitely quirky movies ever made. It's very odd. It's to the, very to this odd. day, it's odd. I came, it, was, it was my number 11. And of all these movies, this Mm. one was my number 11. Uh, The Adventures of Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, is an incredible, wonderful road trip movie uh, about a group of professional drag queens uh, who are traveling across Australia to put on a show. Uh, It is human and funny, and the costumes are perfect. And I love it every single time I see it. It was probably my number 12. Uh, Let's see. Uh, The African Queen, wonderful adventure movie starring Catherine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart. Uh, it's the kind of movie I resisted for a long time because it sounded cloying, and then I finally watched it, and it is just as wonderful as they say. Uh, American Graffiti, a wonderful nostalgic film from George Lucas. All right. Maybe his most human film he's ever done. That's for sure. Yeah, it feels like he actually knows these people and cares about them in a way that he doesn't even care about the people in Star Wars. Uh, American Psycho came very close to my mm-hmm. list. Uh Another movie about capitalism and a movie about misogyny and a movie about violence and the male ego and Christian Bale is next level great in it. And American Werewolf in London is a wonderfully clever and interesting werewolf movie that is everything a werewolf movie should be and a few other things besides. Uh, Amour made my uh, runners up as well for reasons previously said. Same thing for Apocalypse Now. Uh, Denis Villeneuve's Arrival. Uh, I'm I'm convinced this is best movie. Um, It is a film that it is. (laughs) I I agree. Uh, It is a film that is about alien contact, but it is about trying to decipher uh, language. Mm-hmm. Uh, across, uh, you know, basically time and space, and the idea that we need to find a way to communicate with people who we have no way to communicate with, mm-hmm. and everything that entails, and somehow it works. Like it should be something <laughs> that's like so heady, it's inaccessible, but it's really wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's see, Arthur Christmas is one of the best Christmas movies ever. Still haven't seen it. It's just, it just fucking works. It just everything about it works. It should be a Christmas classic. I'm waiting for it to happen. Uh, Arachnophobia. Is a movie I can find no flaws with. <laughs> I love arachnophobia so much, you guys. It's, can, uh, it's a delight. Holds up, doesn't it? Yeah, it really it's, does. It's it's, a, I, I, I saw it not recently, but like yeah. within the decade, and yeah, it's like yeah, oh yeah, it's it's a, pretty good. It's a movie that I'm not just, as good I'm, as Tremors, but in no, that school, it's a movie I'm amazed wasn't a hit. Like I'm amazed people it was a hit. Did, not that big a hit. Not huge, but it was a I'm, I'm amazed, it. But people, it's it's not it's not huge. It should be huge. It's the right. sort of movie that like 
I don't know. Like it just works. Everything about it's great. All the characters are wonderful. The dialogue is sparkles. The mm. suspense is there. It's scary. Like everything about it is amazing. And then my last pick is a film I never have an opportunity to talk about. And maybe if I'd rewatched it, uh, if I'd had time to rewatch it, I might have been able to put it on my top ten. Mm. Uh, but it's uh, and I, I'm going to butcher this name. It's Andres uh, Vida's Ashes and Diamonds. Oh yeah, uh, which is that, that's that's on my runners up as well. Yeah, uh, it's a Polish film from 1958 about uh, a man of the anti-communist movement who is told he needs to assassinate a political official and all of the uh, mm. moral conflict that comes from yeah, that. Ashes and Diamonds is terrific. Really fantastic. I got I had the mm. privilege of seeing it on a big screen once, and it was amazing. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. It was so cool. Um, so yeah, those are my runners right. up. Uh, what do I got? Adam's Rib. Mm. Oh, that's uh, fun. I'll, also put uh, the addiction adaptation. I thought is a really clever screenplay about screenplays. Yep. Uh, Ace in the Hole. A lot of Lant I put on my list. I wish uh, I don't. I, I, Jean, I Jean Vigo's. I, I, uh, it's about a bunch of people living on a boat, and man, yeah. there's something about that movie. I just can't get into it. Oh yeah, I don't just, know why. Oh, there's this kind of slice of life quality. To yeah, it, it should it, be. Like, I just yeah. I'm not interested in that life. Well, all right. <laughs> that's all there's the African to it. Queen is on their airplane. Yeah. Is on my runners up. Lodge Door, the Louise mm. Brunwell film, the follow up to uh, Unchen Andalou. Yeah, another uh, great surrealist short uh, all about my mother is oh, really oh, terrific shit. Yeah. that should have been my runners up yeah that's just an oversight that should have been my yeah, runners I'll, up. I'll ours. well i forgot the apartment so it's all right okay. uh alexander nevsky oh there you go it's a really one. fantastic his- historical epic uh all the real girls is a really great uh tragic romance from david gordon green mm-hmm. Uh, altered states. Uh, <laughs> just done, speaking of head trip movies, I put Amadeus on there. Amar Cord is a Fellini film I kind of came around to at one point. Uh, That's a great way of putting yeah. a Fellini film. I kind of kind of came around, around to it. At it. One point. Well, yeah. <laughs> you, you, I have Airplane on my list. You put Airplane on my list. I also like Amazon Women on the Moon. Yay! <laughs> it's just a, a fun film that I watched numerous times I, growing up. So I, it's just dear to me. It's uh, the, even the deleted scenes are funny. Yeah, yeah. Like it, it's it's dumb. Yeah. It's really low humor, but it. Makes me laugh, so yeah. that's all I can really say. Uh, I think about my, the scene where they do uh, a documentary about uh, who was Jack the Ripper, mm. but it turns out their theory is that Jack the Ripper was the Loch Ness was, monster. Was the Loch Ness monster? I think about that joke at least once a week, <laughs> and have since like 1988. <laughs> like it's so goddamn surreal and funny. I love mm. that. Anyway, uh, my probably the most recent film on my list is American Honey. Oh, interesting. Uh, the Andrea okay. Arnold movie. I really liked American Honey. Uh, it was like 2016 that one came out. I also put American Psycho. Yeah. Uh, I also put American Splendor. Uh, yeah. The Harvey Pekar story. Really Wonderful film. Interplay between the real Harvey Pekar and a fictionalized version of Harvey Harvey Pekar. I still think that's Paul uh, Giamatti's finest hour. Absolutely it is. Yeah. I really liked Annihilation. The, yeah. Uh, that's another one from just a few years ago that I really enjoyed. Lars von Trier's Antichrist is aggressively depressing, almost in an adolescent sort of way, but Lars von Trier, I mean, we need filmmakers who do that, right? True. I mean, we need kind of people who are willing to just rub our nose in the filth and see where the limits really are. Um, yeah. Uh, it, it's kind of hard to, to talk about the separate parts of the Apu trilogy. Yeah. But the second one was called Aparajito. That starts with an A. That's it's all, uh, all grandfather in the whole Apu trilogy. Uh, uh, oh, you get Aparajito. Okay. <laughs> Aparajito is excellent, though. It's yeah. very fun. Uh, it, it's a very bad film, but I really love the Apple. Uh, the yeah, Aristoc- I, knew I thought you were going to put that in your top ten. I no, really did. no, I, I, I didn't really, have I quite, quite that much chutzpah. But okay. uh, the Aristocrats is a hilarious documentary about a joke. Interesting choice. You like the Aristocrats? I like it fine. Yeah. I wouldn't wouldn't have put it in like 
10 or runners up but that's an interesting choice for the list yeah. uh, speaking of Billy Wilder films Arsenic and Old Lace is really funny I, oh uh, shit that should have been a runners up I had that written down I forgot to write it down right. in my final document alright um, yeah that's a, that's a that's one of the funniest movies ever made I'm very fond of the early works of Wong Kar Wai and As Tears Go By is really terrific I put Ash, Ashes and Diamonds on there yeah I've never seen um, As Tears Go By uh, at, at my at film was at midnight I'll take your soul oh, which yeah. is a Coffin Joe film yeah Brazilian mm. horror film yeah um, uh, yeah um, is that it no, I also had an audition. I had The Aviator, the Scorsese movie. Oh, I, really like the Aviator. I love that movie so much, and yet yeah. it wasn't on my list. Weird. Uh, an Army of Shadows, mm. in addition to Army of Darkness, the Jean-Pierre Melville uh, French under French Resistance movie. That techni- it's not a good double feature with Army of Darkness. No, uh, te- techni- <laughs> like it came out in in the '60s in France, but it was never released in the States. They got its first release in the, in the United States in 2005. A lot of film and then, critics, and a lot of film critics were like, "Yeah, it's like this is the best film of the year." From one of the best films of 2005 was this 1966 film. Yeah. It should be, el- and you know, technically it could be eligible for Oscars. I think if France had submitted it yeah as like best foreign language film that's how i felt about the other side mm-hmm. of the wind like it should have been on lists of the best films of the year and people just that just pretended mm-hmm. it didn't exist for some reason mm-hmm. um okay so that we're good that's it that, that's it that's okay list. well that's a hell of a long list of recommendations mm-hmm. um we hope you check out these movies we hope you you liked our recommendations and if you haven't seen anything recommended um let us know if you watch it and mm-hmm. let us know if you dig it or if you 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 disagree with our assessment of these being the best movies ever made that begin with the letter A. Uh, you can uh, leave us a comment uh, wherever you find this, I guess. It's on our <laughs> Patreon page, patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. Or you can email us, uh, letters at critically acclaimed.net. We usually get uh, some responses about our iron list. Um, and we'd be happy to read your thoughts on any of these films or the concept of doing just movies begin with the letter A. Hmm. Uh, letters at critically acclaimed.net. We might read your email on an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I am at William Bibiani. I am at Whitney Seibold. And uh, yeah, we'll be back next month with another Iron List as selected by our patrons. Thank you, everybody who voted. Thank you, everybody who supports the show, whether you're supporting financially, in which case, extra special thank you because we couldn't do this without you, or you're just supporting us by listening, leaving a review where you find us, telling a friend. Mm-hmm. Anywhere you're supporting the show, we're intensely grateful. And we hope you're safe. We hope you're sane. We hope you're, you're taking care of yourselves. And uh, we hope to see you again uh, real soon, even though you can't see us because this is a podcast. Uh, and, uh, That's the list. Bye.